燃え上がれガンダム Welcome to Weekly Suit Gundam, the special bonus podcast brought to you by the folks at Japanimation Station. I am Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. And the beacon on the hill has been lit. The alarm in the woods has been sounded, Jonathan. Gundam has returned. And so have we. It has been a long time since we got to talk about Gundam.、Um, but finally, for the first time, Since we created Weekly Suit Gundam, and actually for the first time since Iron Blooded Orphans, the, a new full AU Gundam show、um, is out. I guess the full production is not yet done, but we have a full big core chunk of 12 episodes of a new Gundam show to talk about. That's right. We are here to talk about Core 1, or what is now being called Season 1, of Mobile Suit Gundam, The Witch from Mercury, also known as Suisei no Majo. Or G Witch, if you're online and you don't want、yes. to write the full title. The Witch from Mercury,、uh, season one. They're calling them season one and season two at sunrise, so we can call them season one and season two.、Yes. That, that is new information. That is like as they started marketing the Blu rays, all of a sudden they started calling it season one and season two. It was not originally planned to be a、no. season one and season two. <laughs> no, although I think very fortunately the, the 12th episode acts as a great finale, even though I don't、yeah. think it was originally intended to have a break here at all.、Um, attested to you by the fact that they are currently in Japan just airing recent Gundam movies in 30 minute chunks on TV、yes. to fill in、uh, space that I think they were contracted to, to provide anime for. So, anyway,、uh, maybe you know, production, whatever difficulties behind the scenes, made for.、Uh, A fantastic show. Is that fair to say, Sean? Yeah, I fucking love The Witch from Mercury.、Uh, I think this is a great show. Obviously, like, this is a, a new scenario for Weekly Suit Gundam, other than maybe, like, arguably with the Hathaway movies, where we are now talking about a story that is in production, right? So we don't know where this is going to go. We can only talk about the 12 episodes that have been released, which is different than what we have done with Weekly Suit Gundam, because obviously, for every previous episode, more or less, They are all shows that were already released and also that I had already seen, so I knew it was coming.、Um, whereas we're, we're all in the dark. Who knows what happens past the,、uh, the very, very ending of episode 12, where you're given like a very shocking and, and incredible moment to hang on.、Um, so it's like, can't stay, speak to what in the end the overall show will be, but for these 12 episodes, I think this is a great anime.、Um, I think it is a great Gundam show that is doing all the things that I wanted this show to do based on. Um, what we saw to it when they were like marketing it, it you know, ahead of time, where it is giving you a new take on the Gundam franchise. It's doing this whole interesting genre blend with this kind of Battle Academy style show that it is for more or less the first like nine to ten episodes. 
Um, but then there is like the hor- the core and the heart of the show is still Gundam all the way through. And then when you get to those last about three episodes, particularly the final episode of the season, it is really fully properly a Gundam show. And I think that kind of balance of genre um, is really impressive. I think the characters are so compelling and incredibly well done. I think it's got maybe like one of the best examples of character design for a show I have ever seen for anime. Like I think the character design in this show is just like incredible and every character is really vibrant. Every character looks great. All the performances are great. The writing is phenomenal. So yeah, I think this is just like a great, great, great show that I'm very excited to see where it goes so that, you know, because you can't fully put it into context yet. But for what we have, I'm fucking loving it. I'm loving it too. You know, I assuming this is going to run the same length as other AU Gundam shows, which I don't know about you, Sean. To me, this feels like the first quarter of a show, not the first half. Um, yeah. And and we do not have confirmation on that, obviously. Um, but it, this show has clearly been a success, so I would imagine yeah. that they are going to be able to go as long as they want. Um, so assuming this is the first quarter, I think if I help hold this up to other AU Gundam shows, I think other than Gundam 00, this might be the first best first core any of those have had. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I think this is a better first core than Iron-Blooded Orphans had. I think it's a better first core than uh, Gundam Seed had, where that's the weakest part of Gundam Seed. Um, yeah. It kind of gets better after that point. You know, if you look at uh, some of the ones from the 90s, I think this has a, a stronger start than some of those. And I wasn't actually... sold on it watching it week to week. I think because just for whatever reason, there are other things going on, maybe hard to focus. I wasn't quite feeling the shape of the show as well. And then I rewatched the whole thing in the week leading up to us recording this just so I could get like, what's the binge feeling like I've done with other Gundams. And it actually, I think when I watched it that way, I was shocked at just how well structured this season Mm -hmm. is. It's basically four arcs of three episodes a piece. Uh, I have come up with names for all four arcs. We'll talk about them later. Um, And I think the internal structure of it, of how each of those three episodes kind of introduces a topic or a theme or a plot point and kind of brings to some kind of resolution to kick off into the next arc is really interesting. And how each of them play with different genre ideas and character ideas um, leading up to this really shocking and impactful finale where the show fully becomes a Gundam show Uh, in ways you expect and in ways you maybe don't expect. And I think it's really interesting on that level. And then everything you said, Sean, I would say this is one of the best animated Gundam shows, bar none. This Mm -hmm. fucking just looks amazing. I think the the character animation in particular is just tremendous. When you get to the final episodes and they're in space, it's maybe the best zero-G animation Gundam has ever had. Um, You know, the battles are very good, even though I would not call this an action-heavy Gundam yet, especially because the action through all the school stuff is low stakes in the sense that no one's going to die in those scenes um but when it's there it is it is very well done the music is 100 percent inherits the legacy of gundam shows have the best music on tv when they're airing <laughs> because this was a this aired in a really good core this the the winter fall season of anime 2022 was really good this had the best music this was tremendous um and yeah, it's just a very, very good show so far. Off to a great start. Feels like it has a lot of room to run after this point. And I'm excited to see where where it goes, hopefully in the uh, next three seasons because of how they're calling these. I assume this is a Gundam oh. show that is somehow going to have four seasons, but whatever. I'm excited to see however they make it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm with you that while they haven't said whether or not there's anything past the 24 episodes currently announced... 
my assumption is that it probably will have a quote unquote seasons three and four. Um, and especially because G Witch is massively popular. It is a huge hit, um, both on streaming for anime, but particularly in Japan. Um, it is a massive success. Like the uh, aerial uh, gun plot has been sold out consistently, from what I understand, since the show started, including some of the other mobile suits they've done. Um, there's a crazy number of big merchandising tie-ins that have been hugely successful. Every single episode, as it has come out in Japan, has like dominated the trending in Twitter um, with character names, with quotes of lines from the episode. Like it is a hugely successful show um and is and it has been clearly very successful at bringing in new viewers to Gundam which is part of the reason why it is this sort of weird genre blend is that it is an intentional sort of attempt to try to expand the audience for Gundam because Gundam is a very old franchise at this point and particularly in Japan where it has that level of sort of like cultural you know background where everybody knows what Gundam is even if you know most modern Japanese people not have not necessarily watched a Gundam show, they're aware of Gundam, right? They know what a Shar is. They know what a Gundam is. They know what a Zaku is, but it's super old. And so this has been, I think, very successful at bringing in a new generation of anime fans, particularly in Japan, into the franchise, which I know from watching um, all of my VTubers, which if you've listened to the Sean Birthday podcast, you know all about VTubers as well. Um, but basically, they're Japanese streamers that use avatars to do their streaming. And I watch a lot of those. They're mostly women that are probably in like their 20s. And they're, and none of them are like big Gundam fans coming into it. But the show, because it was so popular, most of the VTubers I watch, I have seen bunches of clips of them um, commenting on watching different episodes of G-Witch or being surprised by the finale and stuff like that. So it's been a huge success in Japan. Um, and it has been very fun for me watching the show to kind of follow along with that because this is the first Gundam obviously coming out th like this since I got into Gundam, let alone since we got into Gundam as, as for the podcast, like just completely for me for Gundam because it had been so long since Iron Blooded Orphans. Um, and I don't usually watch anime week to week. I eventually made the choice for this one uh, pretty quickly that I had to watch it week to week or else I would get completely spoiled because the internet knows me. The internet knows that like it that I like Gundam. If there's one thing the internet knows about me, it's that I like Gundam. Uh, we're, this is our 60th episode of this fucking podcast. I do lots of research for every episode of this podcast. It's like the internet knows this well. So like everything, it was throwing me G-Witch stuff immediately as soon as that first episode went up. And so I watched it week to week. And I don't think it is like a great week to week show in the sense of like, you know, I'm not surprised, Jonathan, that you had like a kind of a slightly more mixed reaction watching episodes week to week, because I don't think that that structure works that well. Like there are you because you get some and, and just looking at it as a weekly based show, some of those episodes are great episodes on and on of themselves, but lots of them are more, here's a setup for the next episode. You know, here's the build up to the big fight you're going to see next episode. And that's not a super satisfying chunk of story to watch. And this is kind of like how I feel most weekly anime are structured. And it's why I don't watch anime weekly, generally speaking. There's some stuff like Akagi-sama or Spy Family season two, I ended up mostly watching weekly actually. But that's because those are like comedy, they're nicely structured week to week. G-Witch I don't think necessarily has that, but what it does have for the weekly viewing experience is like the show is so popular and it's so good at kind of grabbing the audience's attention 
with like interesting plot twists and great characters and really sharp writing for the dialogue that like it going trending on Japanese Twitter consistently in like five or six different ways every single episode meant that it was really fun to follow the conversation around the show and the fan art and um, like I've been listening to the the radio slash podcast show they do with Ichinose Kana and Lynn, the two voice actors who play the two leads of the show. Um, and so like being able to follow along with all the kind of periphera around the edges of Witch for Mercury has been really fun. And that has made the weekly viewing experience for me um, worth it. But yes, I did like a week or two ago, once the whole show was aired, I sat down and over the course of two to three days, I rewatched the whole show in three to four episode chunks. And as a show, it plays so much better that way. And I'm with you that I think the structure of the show is actually really tight and really sharply designed. It's very smart with how this kind of built out these story arcs of like two to three episodes. Um, and when you can watch it in those chunks, I think the show on its own merits really shines. And, and it would be the thing that if we had watched it as a normal weekly Suit Gundam thing, I would have never even occurred to me what the weekly experience would have been like, because it would have just been, oh, this show is so well designed to be seen in like really manageable hour to 90 minute chunks of episodes. Yeah, it's been super cool. And I've enjoyed some of the periphery as well. Just waking up on Sunday mornings and Twitter is already alight with memes and quotes. And often it will have aired by the time I wake up and I'll get up and there will be something that like, I guess Suleta's mom did something this week because people are tweeting about it. And then I watched the episode and I'm like, she did do something this week. Uh, yeah. It's It's been great. Um, I remember before this aired, I just, from the like, from the prologue, which we have a separate episode on, by the way, if you want to hear us talk all about the episode zero prologue, you can go listen to that episode 59 of Weekly Suit Gundam. But from that, from some of the advertising, and just that like, Anime in North America has gotten a lot bigger since Iron-Blooded Orphans aired and just a lot more accessible because I think Iron-Blooded Orphans, I don't know if that was even technically a simulcast at that point of like day and date. It might have been, a, there were still some shows on like a week or two delay. I don't know mm -hmm. what the case with that one was, but like, you know, um, it's just a lot more part of the culture. And I was saying, I remember saying on Twitter, like, I wonder if G-Witch is going to like break through in a way other Gundams um, maybe haven't in North America and, and some people called me they're like that you're crazy Gundam doesn't break through like that it'll get big once it's done blah 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 and uh, I just am here to tell you you're, you're fucking idiot this show broke through huge like clearly you know obviously huge in Japan also very big here and around the world it clearly had an impact like I saw way more Gundam discussion on my timeline than I generally have even knowing that like the, again the internet knows me too I like Gundam but there was a lot yeah, like in compared to like when Hathaway came out and stuff like that, like you saw some and you saw, but yes. you only saw like Gundam people coming to it. I yes. think the big thing with this is that like it's non-Gundam people also. It's like it is both satisfying existing fans, but people who were not previously fans of Gundam can come to G-Witch and fall in love with the characters in the world. And then, you know, and then it slowly turns the Gundam dial up and they're like, holy shit, what the fuck is this thing? <laughs> because also like in general, when the Gundam stuff happens at the end of this show and it gets a lot more dark and it gets much more violent. Um, like what I have seen in terms of the reception is that the people who got into it for the like cute girls in that kind of stuff, they like, they're still into it, right? That didn't like drop them out of the show or something because it's like, Oh, you went too far. I think the show is well designed to sort of like get you into that world used to this style and then when it pulls the rug out from under you you're still so invested that you're going to continue on with it even if it means probably the second season is not going to have as much 
fun, goofy antics with Sleda and Miodine and that kind of stuff is probably going to be less prominent in season two, would be my guess. I It would be weird if it wasn't. <laughs> It'd be weird if there was more goofy antics after this point, I have to say. That might be a little bit of tonal whiplash. Um, but no, it's, yeah, I agree with that completely. And I think, you know, just looking over all the AU Gundam shows... This one is, I think, by far the easiest to recommend just to anyone. Mm -hmm. Like, if you are just generally a fan of... This, like, crosses so many anime boxes and genres and, I think, audiences. This is a very easy recommend in a way like... Iron-Blood Orphans is fantastic, but I have to tell you, that's a heavy show. And, like, you have to know this, this, and this going into it, right? If you've never mm -hmm. watched Gundam. Gundam Double O is the best AU Gundam show. But, it, it like, even then, I think it's got... I think that one's, f f like, fairly accessible. But it does have a little more of, like, Gundam iconography it's playing with that I think you'd want to know. You know, G-Witch does have, I think... Maybe the most overt shark clone we've had since Gundam Wing, but I don't think you need to know that to enjoy Suleta's uh -huh. mom, Lady Prospera, as a character, you know? Um, so this is just like a super, super accessible show as someone's first Gundam. Yeah, and it's been very fun following it along in that way. Before we get into the show proper, one thing I want to share, my favorite fan artist, I'm going to also post for you, Jonathan, in the chat here, the link to this so you can see it. Um, unfortunately, this is all only in Japanese, but like the art is so cute and good that I think even if you don't know Japanese, you can enjoy these. Um, my favorite Twitter uh, person, like a manga artist who has done a whole daily series where every single day he posts up a new image of this is uh, Yamada Dojin, Y-A-M-A-D-A -A uh, underscore Dojin, D-O-U-G-I-J-I-N. Um, also, Yamada Ichizoku is actually what his name is in, in Japanese in terms of his profile. Um, he has done this whole series of fan-like kind of two-panel comics where he has taken Sleta, turned her into a cartoon tanuki, which is part of the joke around Sleta as the main character is that she's very tanuki-esque. Um, and it's just the most adorable, heartwarming manga I have ever seen it every single day when the new one gets posted in the morning. I, it just fills me with joy that he just takes scenes and he's now wrapped all the way around. And he's doing scenes from the first couple of episodes because he didn't start this right at the beginning of the show. Obviously, he started a couple episodes in once he became a fan. Uh, but he picks like big iconic moments from episodes and turns them into like goofy, funny, adorable little moments of everybody just sort of like... Um, going head over heels for how cute and adorable little cartoon Tanuki Sleta is. Um, and <laughs> and there's so much great fan art. This is my favorite stuff. Um, I think these are so good. Um, but just top to bottom, it is the thing I'm going to miss the most in the like three to four months between seasons is not just getting such a ready dose of really good, <laughs> um, cool or funny or weird or goofy fan art because the fan community around G-Witch is so active and vibrant and creative. Um, but if people have not seen the Yamada Dojin stuff and you like G-Witch, you owe it to yourself to go look him up on Twitter because they're, they're so fucking good. This is amazing. And Sunrise, if you're listening, I think for seasons three and four, if you need a break between cores, hire this guy and make a team to do like a chibi Gundam Witch 13 episode season just of Tanuki Suleta and her adventures. Make an anime out of that in the middle. I want that. That'd be great. Yeah, I mean, this guy made, he took all of his, uh, the things he had made uh, and put them together into a little doujin ma magazine and sold them at the Winter Comic Hat. And it's like, I've never been more jealous because it's like, I so <laughs> desperately want just like a physical book of all these like goofy chibi comics. Yeah. Um, but yes, but this is, the, this is just more to also illustrate in general, 
how cool the fan community, I think, around G-Witch has been, because I just think it's inspired so much great fan content um, that has made, been one of the things for me that is different about the show, partially just because it's like the internet is so much different now than it has been for previous Gundam shows, even just with like Iron-Blooded Orphans, you know, like this kind of stuff is much more easy to access in in everything than it was back then, um, particularly over here. Um, And then also just for me, the first time I've been able to follow something like this as each episode is coming out. Um, And so that has been part of like a distinct joy of G-Witch for me. Absolutely. Um, It's been very cool, very fun, different experience, but a wonderful one. So let's go ahead and dive in. And we've stayed spoiler-free so far. Uh, I think from this point on, spoilers are fair game. So if you have not yet watched G-Witch, please go watch it. I think you will enjoy it. It's a blast. Uh, And then it is sad. But, (laughs) you know, it's a a great show. And I think you're going to love it. But from here on out, uh, spoilers abound. Um, We don't usually make that warning on Weekly Suit Gundam. But since this is a brand new show, I feel Mm -hmm. like we probably should. So there you go. Uh, Sean, take it away. What are we talking about next? Yeah, so I'm just going to do a quick recap of some of the production stuff behind the show, partially because there's some stuff we know now that we didn't in the prologue episode, and also in case people don't remember or didn't listen to our episode covering the prologue, let's go over a little bit of the the behind-the-scenes stuff. So the two main creative figures to look at in terms of this show are the director, Hiroshi Kobayashi, um, who his best-known stuff is uh, probably he was the director for the show Kiznaiver, um, which is a studio trigger show. And then he also did the show Dragon Pilots, uh, Hisako in Minotan, I think is the name of that show, or Misotan, um, which uh, I have not watched that one. I've watched Kiz- Kiznaiver and I like that. Um, but so those are the two main shows he's directed. Um, Dragon Pilots is sort of a, a mecha, like adjacent show. He's also worked on other Gundam projects before in the past, doing storyboarding for stuff like Iron Blooded Orphans. The really big name for this show, though, is the writer, uh, Okoji Ichiro. Um, He has done a lot of stuff um, with his biggest thing by far being he is the writer for the Code Geass series. He's like the writer and effectively the creator of Code Geass, which I still have not actually gotten around to watching Code Geass um, because I instead of watching Code Geass, I watched something else that Okochi was involved in that is also G-Witch adjacent, which he is the writer of the light novels. Um, for Revolutionary Girl Utena. So he's not the creator of the Utena series, but he's like one of the creators in the broader multimedia project of Utena, just not like the the anime, which is the original thing for that project. Um, And you can see there are lots of sort of broad references to Utena in the first episode, which like a lot of people started pointing out on Twitter. Um, And I had not seen Utena at that point, and I did watch it. Um, Utena is fucking amazing if people are curious. It is, if you want to watch a really good anime, Utena is probably one of the best anime I've ever seen. Um, it's not necessarily like mandatory viewing for G-Wish or anything. It's, the references are very broad. It is not like, oh, this is, they're pulling all this stuff from Utena. It's one of like a thousand things that G-Wish is kind of putting into a blender and mixing together in terms of its influence. Um, but, you know, it is definitely a part of that. And it's part of the background of the creator, Okochi, who has also done some other stuff that has like, that you would broadly put into the Yuri genre of anime which is like girls love basically, right? Yuri is um, if you like two girls who fall in love over the course of the show, right? Either they literally do or they're like, you know, it's kind of implied that they are, even if it's not going to actually show it, 
because depending on the era that that kind of show comes out, like Utena very much falls into that category where it's basically a Yudi show about the two main characters falling in love. Even if in the TV show, they don't get super explicit about it. It's still very much part of like the DNA of that show. And G-Witch is in that broad genre um, as well as including some of the Battle Academy stuff, which even though I have not seen Code Geass, I know that it's like a mecha show that is set at a school. Obviously, some of that stuff is in G-Witch also. Some of the other stuff we know about the show now that, um, you know, that wasn't known at the time is that the show did have um, a fairly troubled production, not because, from what I understand, anything was mismanaged, but because, like, this is a very, very fucking hard show to make. So if you look at the credits, um, like, it is crazy how many different studios helped out and how many different people jumped in and helped out, like, big animators, like, some of the stuff... Um, the big part the beginning of that big chase scene in, I think it's episode 11, um, or maybe it's episode 10 between Miodine, it's 11, between Miodine and Sleda, where she comes out of the bathroom. Um, some of that was animated by the people who worked on the Hathaway movies, who are like old school animators and stuff like that. Um, and you can tell of, because that yes. is one of the most impressive pieces of TV animation I've ever seen. Yes. Um, and there's like lots of stuff like that throughout the whole show where so many people came together at Sunrise and at other studios to like make this show work partially because G witch is a particular rarity these days. And that is very insistent upon using 2d animation for the mecha stuff. Like 99% of the time, it's very rare that they do a shot where they use 3d. It happens every once in a while, but the vast majority of mecha is rendered in 2d in the show, which there are not lots of animators anymore that have that kind of specialty, right? Like if animating something like super complex and geometric, like a mecha is a real particular skill set for an animator. And it's just, you know, not lots of animators have that specialty anymore. There aren't many mecha shows. Most mecha stuff that comes out, they just use 3d because 3d is much more naturally suited to animating something like a mech or a car or things like that. Even if there's obviously, I think, we all recognize that there's a lot of value out of trying to express those things in 2D animation. There are things that 2D animation can do with Mecha that 3D can't. And so the show's insistence on using that 2D stuff is also one of the reasons why the production is troubled in terms of um, they almost certainly, they have not said this, but I think it's very easy to read between the lines and see that it was not meant to have a split core originally. And there was going to be a 24 episode run straight through. There was one point over the course of the season where they did delay an episode by a week. Um, and then right at the home stretch, there were two weeks that got delayed because of not because of production stuff, but because the channel that they aired on had different new year's specials and things like that, that took up the time slot. But if you look at, if you assume this had like a totally smooth production with no delays in the original running. If it had gone through those new year special things would have arrived right the week after episode 12, which would have made the two week break between part one of the season and part two of the season, which that to me makes perfect sense that that clearly to me is what the original plan was going to be at some point before the airing of season one, they announced, hey, it's going to be a split core. They then also announced, as you pointed out earlier, Jonathan, that they have chunked up stuff like the Gundam Hathaway movies into a TV version to air to fill the gap between season one and season two. And season two is just airing in the spring season for 2023. So it's only off for one season, quote unquote, of anime. Um, and so it is to me, it's pretty evident that it was originally meant to be a consecutive 24 episode run with a couple week break there in the middle. 
Um, but for those kinds of production reasons, it has now become a split core. Now, all that being said, I think the experience of watching the show, none of that is evident. Like, it is not a show that looks troubled in any way, shape, or form. It is one of the best-looking TV Gundam shows. It's one of the best-looking shows from that season in anime. Um, it is one of the best-looking TV Gundam, like, if not arguably the best-looking TV Gundam. Like, I think it holds its own against anything else. So it's like they have managed the show incredibly well. It's just, I think, a very hard kind of show to make these days in the way they're trying to make it. Um, and most shows, most anime are not doing 24 consecutive episode runs. Even Spy Family didn't do that. You know, like it is becoming much more the trend to do 12 episode chunks and then breaking it up that way. Um, you know, we're far away from the days when you would expect shows to run for a whole year and do your 50 episode thing just straight through. Um, now, even like a 24 episode thing with the level of quality we kind of expect from TV anime, that's not super feasible anymore either. Um, so that's that's one of the things that, you know, was not apparent about the show the last time we talked about it for the prologue. Um, but I do think it's interesting kind of seeing the way that Sunrise has sort of like used all of its resources to really like make sure that G-Witch can be the best it can be. Um, and also like finding smart ways to delay or break it up into manageable chunks so that the production can be as good as it is for the uh, audience watching it. It's really striking if you look at the list of, you talk about the list of credits and you can just, you can, especially if you can like read Katakana, you can count the studios that they were bringing in to work mm -hmm. on this thing. But also if you look at the credits, it's amazing how uh, over the course of the season, the director and storyboard credits balloon. That's yes. not super unusual for storyboard credits. You will often for heavier episodes have multiple people boarding for different sequences because maybe one sequence just is much more demanding than sort of a normal dialogue exchange, right? Um, but for the directing credits, there are two episodes, 8 and 12, that have four credited episodic directors. Uh, and then most of the episodes in the second half of the season have two or three. So, like, that that also just tells you, because what that means, that doesn't mean that there were four directors in the room looking over everything. It means that, like, sequence-based, you were breaking it up, and, like, this person was overseeing this sequence, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I think that makes sense when you look at the episodes that have that many people in there. Um but it's wild. Uh, and yeah, it does not come across in the finished show. The finished show is one of the most, as you say, polished Gundam productions easily. But yeah, the and, and obviously we're in a period where G-Witch is not the only anime that, troubled or not, there's a lot of anime that are having production issues also because of outsourcing and what other Asian Pacific countries are going through with COVID or whatever. Um, like we just got the news this morning that the Nier Automata animation is mm -hmm. going off the air indefinitely after episode three. Uh, so, you know, th this is happening. Attack on Titan, the final season, part three, is becoming a split core thing, even though that core should only be like six or seven episodes total. Um, it's crazy. So there's a lot of shows that are going through sort of growing pains, but I think it makes sense when you look at how ambitious this one is and how fucking good it looks. Like those last couple episodes where you have four directors credited and four storyboard artists, sometimes that might indicate a troubled you know, behind the scenes and that the episode might be messy, those are production-wise the most impressive of the season. So, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, it's the opposite effect of like Gundam Wing, where even if you didn't know in Gundam Wing the behind-the-scenes stuff of, oh, the guy who directed the first like 15 or so episodes like got kicked off the show and they had to bring another dude in to finish it off, like you can feel with that show that's like, oh man, they just lost sight completely of what the fuck they're trying to do with it. Um, whereas with G-Witch, it really feels like the experience is, this is like such a like talented team putting this product together. 
Um, and so it's like, if it were not for the fact that one, the show is airing weekly, so it's a lot easier to hear some of this production stuff in real time than it is when we're talking about something that aired in the nineties. Um, like if it wasn't for that, like, I don't know if like some of that stuff would even really come up in conversation. Like do you imagine we did weekly suit Gundam 10 years later and G witch was just like a, what an older Gundam show. Um, I don't think it would ever occur to me that this show would have had production issues. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's it's great because I think that the when because the they they made that announcement that they were like cutting up Hathaway and Narrative Gundam and Thunderbolt Gundam for TV to fill like basically probably to fill like a contractual obligation because mm-hmm. they couldn't make a new anime to go in that slot that fast that the network probably couldn't find something else to air for twelve weeks um, and you go oh no is the show gonna be okay and and then very quickly I think you realize oh it, it's fine they're they're yeah. doing it's hard work but it's fine it looks great it it plays great. The scripts are extremely solid. All of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's our behind-the-scenes uh, production stuff. Where do you want to start with the show proper, Jonathan? Well, just talking about that structure, as I said, it, it occurred to me... Because when I was watching it week to week, there were a couple of things where I felt like... Is the show maybe having some little like plot cul-de-sacs or there are more plot turns and I kind of like for instance so the first three episodes you have a duel with Guel Jeturk in episode one and you have another duel with Guel Jeturk in episode three you know you have sort of that middle arc where they're kind of getting to know the earth house and then you go immediately back to is this a Gundam and now we find out it is a Gundam and then they're forming Gundarm but then after they form Gundarm Shadik wants to come fight but then I kind of as I said I, I watched it and you did the same thing kind of all in one binge and it, it became very clear how internally structured this thing is into, mm-hmm. and I think it's very intentional when you look at these three episode chunks. So you have your first three episodes, what I've dubbed the Guel is a loser arc, um, where you have Guel Jeturk get uh, absolutely bodied twice in a row. But in the middle, you have this whole debate where Miorine comes in um, and sort of uh, commits to Saleta the way Saleta has committed to her. And I actually think it's a very well-balanced arc to kind of have these two fights, one of which is is a spur-of-the-moment thing, and one of which is a result of a commitment between these two characters. You then have episodes four to six, Elan's happy birthday arc, where you have... Um, the, this is sort of focused on two things, the relationship between Saleta and Miorine and Earth House, which they wind up joining, and we meet all of those characters, and then Saleta with Elan Karras, um, the character who uh, tragically gets uh, vaporized uh, yes. in episode six. Well, we actually don't know this person's actual name who gets vaporized, um, but Ellen Karras is like clone person. Then you have episode seven to nine where they form Gundarm. They're kind of making these long-term goals. You have Shadik as kind of steps into the spotlight as an antagonist, an inevitable antagonist, because that dude is clearly a piece of shit from the beginning. Yeah. He's just he's just a pretty boy. Uh, and so you have that. And then finally you have the Suleta's insecurity slash murder arc where we go into space and we get a ship and basically we get all the pieces of Gundam iconography in one place where they are, they're flying in space, they have a ship, we're in zero G, we have the scene where two people who are in love uh, crash in zero G together and their bodies spin a little bit and then they yeah. hug. Um, you know, you have that and then you have the, the moment of murder at the end of the season. And I think just looking at that and how those three episode chunks are structured to kind of each tell and focus in on a certain facet of the story of the themes of different genres 
genre types, like episodes four to six are by far the most kind of everyday life at school stories, but they are also where we get the first real hint outside of the prologue that, right, this is a fucking Gundam show because what happens to Elon is so fucking tragic, but nobody else knows it happens. Um, and so I think that play with genre is very fun. Seven to nine, you get another kind of wrinkle in the mix of kind of what genre ideas we're playing with. You get more of a focus on Miorine there, whereas four to six were more Suleta focused. Um, it just is a very well-structured season in a way that I wasn't fully aware of while it was airing. Yeah, and for me looking at it, like I more or less break it down the same way you do. Um, for me, I thought of it more as like, you have two episodes, like basically a part one, part two episodes, and then there's like a break episode between them, right? Because you have episode one, which is totally standalone, then episode two, which sets up the fight in episode three, episode four is standalone, episode five sets up the fight that's in episode six, episode seven standalone, episode eight sets up the episode, the fight in episode nine, 10 is standalone, 11 sets up the fight that's in episode 12, um, yeah. which is the same basic structure, but it's like how the, that three parts breaks down very consistently. And the other thing it does is that in episode one, it sets up your three boys. It sets up Guel, it sets up Ellen, and it sets up uh, Shadik. And then the rest of the, that most of the season is then walking through each of them. You deal with Guel, then you deal with Ellen, then you deal with Shadik, and now it's, it, now Gundam is here, right? Then the rest of the school, like, stuff kind of totally breaks down at that point. Um, and I think there are so many things like that where the, the, the sort of, top level structure of the show is really sharp and really well thought through and considered, even if it does mean I think watching it one episode at a time, week to week, makes that a little bit hard to see that structure, especially, you know, because you're doing other stuff for the rest of that week. You're not just sitting there thinking about that one episode of G Witch you watched. Right. Um, so it's like easy to kind of lose sight of what that structure is doing. But when you're able to break it down and watch it in chunks like that, um, I think, yeah, like the elegance of the plotting really comes through and this show like moves through a lot of plot stuff like i saw people can like criticizing it while it was airing feeling like it was moving too slow but it's like when you look at the show like and you're able to watch it in those chunks it's like no like it moves through so much stuff because the school part of the show is basically done by episode six because once you go move to Shall We Gundam, the greatest title for any episode of a Gundam show of all time, episode seven, that's where I they am set so up. mad that yes. that is not the title of our podcast. I uh -huh. am so fucking angry that this had not aired yet and we couldn't just have taken that and Weekly Suit Gundam. I like the title Weekly Suit Gundam. If this show was called Shall We Gundam and every show started with you, Sean, leaning into the microphone and going, Shall We Gundam? And then we went into the theme song. That would be fucking amazing. It would be amazing, and, it, and it's, yeah, it's such a good title, it's a great episode, and that's the episode that sets up the Gundam Company, you know? Yes. And that's like, at that point, you're very well out of, this is the fun school show, you know? It, like, the the style of the plots becomes totally different, um, and so, yeah, like, I think this show actually moves really quickly through like a lot of really interesting ideas, and then it, like, it spins two to three episodes on that idea, and then it moves on to the next thing. Um, and, and that is one of the many things about this show that I think kind of puts you a little bit off your guard because the school setting naturally sets you up to expect the, like a much more sort of like normal episodic structure that it would just run through the same routine every single episode, the way that like something like revolutionary girl Utena does, 
which is has two kinds of episodes. It's got comedy episodes and plot episodes. And those episodes follow the exact same structure. And if it's like a plot episode, other than when you get to the very end and it gets you like, okay, these episodes are going to be a little bit more special. Every single one of the plot episodes of Utena is you set up whoever the antagonist is going to be in the first half of the show. They challenge Utena to a duel at the middle point of the show. Then she has the fight at the end of the show and then it resolves the plot. And that's, you know, and it's got a very comfortable episodic plot based structure like that. Um, this is not doing that. This is sort of like giving you tastes of that kind of genre and using up that idea. And then it moves on to the next thing. Um, and that's because it's really what it is doing is it needs to get to, and this is a Gundam at the end. And that's like part of the reason it's moving through those plots that way um, is because really underneath everything, you have this tension of understanding that outside of the kind of sheltered world that the main characters are experiencing, Gundam is out there and like war and violence and despair and all those things like the themes we know of Gundam are like wolves at the fucking gates and they are, and you can hear them howling throughout this episode and it gets, or these episodes, it gets louder and louder throughout the season till you get to episode 11 where you're like, for me, after watching episode 11 real time, I was like paralyzed with fear of like, oh God, I don't want to see anything bad happen to any of these characters because yes. I love them all so much. And then episode 12 is the gates get broken down and the wolves come in and it's a bloody fucking affair. Um, and like, what a great structure for a season of TV that is. Phenomenal. And I think when you compare it to other AU Gundam shows, I would say for most of the AU Gundam shows, the first quarter, the first core is probably the weakest stretch. I would say mm -hmm. that for almost all of them, other than maybe like Gundam 00 is just so consistent. And I think it has a similar like right out of the bat, has a sense of itself and a structure and all of that that is similar to G-Witch. But even like Iron Blood Orphans, which I love, I absolutely think the weakest part of that show the first like set of episodes are fantastic. I think it's a little shapeless in the middle of that season. Mm -hmm. And then the second core is like really strong and builds to that tremendous ending. But there's a little bit like once they get out into space that is a little bit circular and I think has some like plot issues here and there. You know, Gundam Seed and Seed Destiny are both kind of off kilter at the very beginning and and seed destiny never <laughs> snaps together and yeah. seed very much does snap together but not in that first core um you know well i would say probably the best core of uh gundam um of, of gundam wing is the first core but that's just because gundam wing gets sadder yeah. and sadder and worse because that's the um, only good core of gundam wing is just the first yes, one that's the problem um, if if gundam yes. wing if the rest of the show had been to that level of quality you like pray for the gundam wing where that was the worst part of the show i know god anyway but no i do think this is like unusually like really well structured and structured in a way that i i there's no like other gundam that feels like this one i think yeah. obviously because it's playing with other genres i think before we got to like episode 10 before we're taken off into space and they have their own ship and stuff i would have said this is like the most different gundam since g gundam like this is by far like and, and obviously gundam build fighters and build divers are on their own thing but honestly even gundam build divers re-rise has more sort of of your gundam basics in it than G-Witch does until G-Witch brings it all in. And it's exactly what you're saying, Sean. If it's the it's the wolves waiting at the door, it's that growing realization as you're watching the season that at this school, at the academy, they are sheltered from these things, but those things are 100% out there. And these characters have been, in some sense, built to be sheltered from these things. And I think the realization that, like, for instance, something is up with Suleta beyond her mm -hmm. being a fun you know, Tanuki-esque girl. Uh, and Lady Prospera 
she's not just wearing that mask for fun. You know, there's all sorts of things going on that I think, especially on a second viewing, when you're realizing uh, what's going on, it's it's really interesting. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it, it was, if people have not done the, like, more binge-style watch-through of G-Wish, you really should, because, yeah, I think a lot of that stuff just, like, snaps into focus so much clearer when you can just move really, like, seamlessly through those story arcs. Yeah. Uh, although one thing that is good, either way you watch it, is I do think that first episode is mm-hmm. just a phenomenal premiere. And that is in yeah. a long lineage of Gundam shows that have phenomenal premieres from the very first Gundam 40-some years ago all the way up to now. Gundam premieres are often very good, and I think The Witch and the Bride is uh, up there as well. Just the... I was surprised again watching it a second time. There are scenes in that episode I assumed in my memory were like in later episodes because it moves through so much stuff. It has that Tomino-esque quality of, wow, we got through a lot of plot in 22 minutes here, didn't we? Because you get through all of Suleta arriving having some initial introductions, meeting Miorine, Miorine having this kind of chip on her shoulder because Suleta accidentally rescued her, meeting Guel, Guel being a dick, preparing for the duel. The duel happens, Miorine goes out in the Gundam first, then Suleta goes out and takes it, there's a fight, and then at the end you have the twist about the whole bride thing, which is the, the big kind of thing they take from um, revolutionary, revolutionary girl Utena, as you said, Sean. Uh, and it just leaves you kind of breathless. It's such a striking, well-done premiere. Yeah, and that and it was like immediately right off the bat you saw like how good this show is at kind of grabbing the audience interest because that episode is just chock full of great little moments like with Saleta slapping Guell in the ass um to <laughs> yes. like when he starts harassing Miodine which is just like an all-time great Gundam moment right at the beginning you get your slap but it's like hey you got you got your Gundam slap but this is not the Gundam slap you've seen before <laughs> Um, and her just, that's where you get like so much of the great physical acting for the characters and the way they do the animation, particularly for Saleta with like her awkwardness and her like getting to her like attack pose or whatever, um, like her defense stance. (laughs) Um, but then also you get that amazing ending of the episode where she beats Guel in the duel. Um, and she cuts off the, the crest or whatever on his mobile suit, which has all these feathers on it. So these like angel angelic like dove feathers go like flying through the air and they're standing there and um that's when Miodine says you know that hey you know you're now my groom you know uh, because you know whoever wins in the duel is going to be my husband uh and Slez says oh it's like but 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 I'm a girl and then Miodine has this great line where she says like oh kataiwane suisei like kochi demo zinzen adio uh, it's like, oh, it's like, man, you guys must be really conservative on Mercury. Like, we're totally fine with that shit here. Um, and <laughs> it's like immediately you get, particularly with Miodine, the writing for her dialogue is so interesting and so good um, that her, like almost every single episode, one of her lines of dialogue ended up being trending on Japanese Twitter because of how good the writing is in that like Oka Taiwane uh, is like, which is that kind of like, hey, you're being conservative, like that one trending on Japanese Twitter as soon as the episode finished. Um and it's it's yeah like that episode immediately it gives you everything you want it gives you your really interesting characters it gives you this hint of this cool setting with the school and everything it gives you this really good fight and it gives you your your yuri dynamic at the end with your two cute girl protagonists um it's yeah like that first episode as soon as it finished i was like yep this is gonna be good this is gonna be a good fucking show 
uh, and the music, the fucking yes. music, in because that's where you get the first version of the the Witch from Mercury theme. We we do not have a full soundtrack yet. That is one of the most frustrating things about watching a new Gundam show is I can't just go listen to the full soundtrack yet because it's not out. Um, but there is a like two track sampler out on Spotify and everything, and it's got the theme of the school, and then it's got the theme that's just called the Witch from Mercury, which plays in both of her first duels with Guel, and then in different ways in other episodes. But it's where you have like the big fucking like wailing chorus come in. Mm-hmm. and it's just so fucking hype and that first fight is one of the best in the entire series i think just seeing the aerial in action and what it can do and it is such a good gundam design uh and then i think the color work on the background as you said when you know she takes off the 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 cap and it, it just flies into like angel feathers and then the final shot of them on the hand of the gundam kneeling down and there's the uh, in the moment where they found out this relationship uh it's it's so good yeah, it's it's just an all-time great pilot episode, and the fact that they were able to get all of that into one episode is, like, insanely impressive. Because even other, you know, great Gundam shows, like, can't manage that all the time, of, like, getting all of that into one episode. You know, like, you know, Zeta Gundam couldn't manage to get all of its shit in that first episode, right? It's got basically a two-part premiere. Um, and so it's I'm always really impressed when a show can do this and get the whole scope of what the show is and running through a sample of it in one episode, like, that's really cool. That's the Gundam touch. That's where, you know, yeah. there hasn't been any major tragedy yet, prologue accepted, uh, but you know this is a Gundam show just on the basis of there's just not very many anime that do that thing of the first episode is that packed and mm-hmm. that good. It, you know, I think in most anime you would just, because it feels, I think, to a lot of writers and and fans as well, more natural to, like, well, we're going to need a full episode to, like, meet Suleta before we do this crazy duel, right? And they don't. They they know that you can then use episode two to do a lot of that key character work. You don't have mm-hmm. to, like, do it in a certain prescribed order. Because episode one doesn't get through everything you need, but I think it hits all of those beats to really get you on board and have sort of the stakes established. And then, as you say, episodes two and three start establishing this structure, Sean, where you have kind of a setup and a payoff episode. But that setup episode is very key in having Miorine start to return the trust that Suleta has placed in her um, and, and go deeper with those characters and have kind of a breather episode. It's, it's extremely well-structured, as we've been saying. Yeah, and, and one of the key things for that episode one and why I think they needed to do it that way is because I think you need to see both sides of Sleta's character because it's so fundamental to her, right? Because there's one other thing that, like, you know, I think it's it's it doesn't stand out to us now that much, but it is obviously still worth mentioning is that Sleta is the first female protagonist that Gundam has ever had, right? And so yes. it's, you know, we... It's a thing that the show needs to think about, like, how do you portray this character? And I like in that first episode that you get both her, like, social awkwardness and that very kind of endearing quality she has as this kind of bumpkin from Mercury has never been to school before. You know, she's never met anyone her age before, I think, is the implication. Like, because there's no, there are no kids in Mercury. It is like this weird mining facility or something on that planet where they're mining that permit shit that makes the mobile suits work. Um... So she's got that quality to her, this awkward bumpkin. But then when she gets into um, Ariel, she's like shockingly confident, right? And this is also where you get the, her kind of catchphrase, the Nigaba Hitotsu Susumeba Futatsu. If you retreat, you get one. If you advance, you get two. Um, and you get this like side to her that's honestly unusual for Gundam protagonists at the beginning of a show where she's so confident in herself and she's so like direct in that contrast 
with how scared she is in the first part of the episode gives you this sense of like, there's a lot more to this character. I think when you see her for the first half of the episode, it's very easy to kind of pigeonhole Sleta as like that type the socially awkward type that you see in lots of anime these days. Um, that kind of is meant to be a little bit of a stand in for your otaku, you know, like another show that aired, that's a great show in the same season, Bochi the Rock is yes. like the epitome of that kind of protagonist um, for a comedy show. So it like works that they don't really kind of push Bochi that much outside of that other than towards the end when she gets a bit more confident. Um, but for Saleta, she needs to be both that and also the pilot of the Gundam. So she needs to have this part of her that when she gets into the fight and when she's with Ariel, there's this almost kind of eerie way that she like switches into this pilot mode and that she's so fearless. And you see that throughout the rest of the show as well. Like when she starts talking to Guel in episode three and stuff like that, um, when she's getting challenged for a duel again, how confident she is in saying like, no, you lost, like I won. Um, you know, she's when it comes to stuff like that and it comes to Ariel and it comes to like mobile suits and piloting, she's not cowed. She doesn't back down. Um, she stands up straight. Her design is so good where she's like really tall. She's one of the tallest Gundam protagonists we have. Like she's not tall in real world terms. She's like five foot seven or something. Um, but for Gundam protagonists, she's taller than Amuro was. You know, like she's taller than any of the other female characters in the show. And she's got these like very broad shoulders. And so when she's nervous, she like makes herself physically smaller. But when she's confident, she has this very striking, like like more kind of like strong, slim and like athletic build to her that comes across. Um, and I think that's one of those things that just in that one episode, you get to see that whole scope of that character. Um, and it's what makes her such an interesting protagonist because she's different than other Gundam protagonists. Um, but you can see like, all these elements of her character kind of combining into this unique figure. It's great. It's it's reversing the formulation for a lot of Gundam characters yeah. where, uh, you know, they're hot shit until they get in the mobile suit and then they have various difficulties, you know? Camille is extremely confident and then he gets in the mobile suit and he's still, he's confident because he just stole a fucking mobile suit, but he doesn't like know every control yet. You know, he's stumbling out of the fucking police station in the big black Gundam. You know, that's kind of your, your, what you'll often get or Amuro or something. Amuro is, is a shut in, but he is fairly confident up to and including the point of getting in the Gundam. And then there's a lot of nervousness in that first fight. You know, it's, it's the, it's why it's such a famous scene is the kind of unsure nature with which he goes after those two Zakus in that first scene. And instead, you know, uh, Suleta is at her absolute most confident in there. And it's not even, it's interesting the word confident, because I think that is the right word. But I almost would go to a word like it's almost more of like a Zen state or a mm -hmm. flow state or like a comfort, right? Because when she's in the aerial, it's like a sibling to her or like a parent. She feels very safe. It's very homey. We see her hanging out in the aerial in certain episodes later on, just as like that's where she goes uh, and hangs out This in a similar but very different way to the protagonist of um, uh, Iron-Blooded Orphans in the second half of the show. <laughs> sure. But that's because he can only have his legs when he's in the, yes. in the, in the Gundam. But no, um, but she's often hanging out in there. She talks to it. She doesn't seem to have a sense of danger in this thing like it doesn't seem to occur to her that this is a weapon of war where bad things could happen to her inside it that's the safe place she's gonna be okay in there and even up to like in all of the duels 
losing does not seem to be a thing that she can even really conceive of. Like, that's just something that, like, she is going to win. And and that's why, like, confidence I almost think of as, like, an active thing that you consider. That's just who Suleta is in those scenes, right? Like, that's her home base. That's her her tether is to, in, in like, psychoanalytic terms, is to the aerial. And everything else, at, the further she gets outside of that radius, is scary and is different and is, you know... Um, is what is actually challenging about the world. And as you say, that is such an interesting type because Suleta is absolutely adorable and fulfills that sort of, it, it was funny watching this and Bochi at the same time because Bochi, the rock, like there's actually a lot of similarities between the characterization of her and of Suleta. The difference is Bochi, Bochi has her guitar work where she's confident, but it's a different kind of thing than Suleta going and getting in the mobile suit where you see that like, the character is just quite a bit more complicated than the type she's seemingly assigned at first. Yeah, and and they're so kind of good at exploring that throughout the whole season, right? Because you have her big breakdown in episode four when she's in the Demi-Trainer doing that, like, the landmine thing. Um, and that's, like, partially that's because she's not with the Ariel, right? So she's, like, alone on that test, um, failing it over and over and over again. Um, and then also at the end of the season when she does get into what is a like actual life or death fight in a Gundam, like she's never scared during that. Right. That's like one of the things I think is really shocking about the, the finale is that you're expecting the turn to be that Saleta, once she's put into a real fight, that is not a duel that then she loses that confidence in, in the aerial. That's what I expected the, the, the finale to be. And that's not it at all. Like she handily like sort of wins that like brief encounter there. She's never scared. It doesn't seem to occur to her or if it does occur to her, she doesn't care that she might die in this like real exchange with live fire with an enemy combatant. Um, then the twist is obviously what happens when she kills someone at the very end of the episode. And that's like kind of that turn. But that consistency throughout the whole episode is part of just the, or the whole season is part of the thing that's like really surprising and interesting about her character is that sense of real power she has within the aerial and the confidence or that kind of almost as you're putting Zen like state that she has that is kind of always there when she's with the aerial, which becomes a more kind of almost unsettling as the season goes on when she should be more nervous and she should be more scared than she is. And now she's like literally talking to Ariel in the cockpit and other people are taking note of that and being like, what the fuck's going on? Um, it's just, it's such a different kind of arc for a Gundam protagonist. I think works so well here. Yeah. And you know, you said earlier that it, we maybe start to take it for granted. Um, and I think I actually noticed it even more on the second viewing. Not only is this our first Gundam show with a female protagonist, it is a predominantly female cast. Yes. Like that is uh, a major part of it. All of the major main characters are women. And you do have a couple of male characters, but they are very clearly either the villains, like in Delling Rembrandt or Shadik, or they are kind of like, uh, it's ambiguous where, you know, we don't know exactly, I think, where Gwell is going to fall on which side mm -hmm. of the line in future episodes, although that's a very interesting character. But those are very clearly supporting characters. All of our, like, main central figures in this show are women, up to and including the Shar of this show is her mom, is Lady Prospera, which is one of the most interesting things they do. Yeah. Um, and I think having just a primary female cast having a show that is primarily about you know relationships between women um having a central you know it's i, I am not 100 percent sure where they're going to go with it but it sure in episode 11 seems like it's being coded as a romance between miorine mm -hmm. and suleta um you know all of that i think is like 
this is this is not a case where they just took an existing sort of Gundam template and put a woman in instead of a, or a girl in instead of a boy. We have a Gundam girl instead of a Gundam boy. They really thought through the whole show around how do you tell a Gundam story with not just a girl, but women at the center of it. And I think that's one of the coolest things about this show. And one of the things that I think has really probably helped it to explode in all sorts of fandom circles that it might not, other Gundam shows might not have. Yeah, it's definitely one of the things that, yeah, attracts like a different audience to it because um, outside of like the, the specific like periods where you had Gundam Wing or you had Double O, the shows that like really in, in seed, those shows that really appealed to a female audience, generally speaking, Gundam still has a very kind of like masculine like sort of per- perception of it because most Gundam stuff is so kind of like masculine oriented and is, is marketed towards men and stuff like that. And they all feature male protagonists and like the popularity within the female fan bases around the the shows like Gundam Week and Gundam Seed and Double O Gundam is primarily around the a yaoi style fan base that's about male to male pairings that those shows never get explicit about but they do toy with enough to sort of like entertain that fan base and attract that fan base um whereas here yeah it's taking a very different tack in how to attract this bigger fan base um, that reaches different kinds of demographics, um, whether in like sort of different otaku spheres with some of the genres it's tackling, or just in terms of like women by featuring female main characters. And as I say, it's not just Saleta, it's the whole main cast, and it's what the core fundamental relationships of the show are primarily focused on. Like the main two relationships in the show are Miodene Saleta and Saleta and her mother, Lady Prospera. Um, and it's like, it's so much about the dynamics of those relationships. And like most of the juiciest moments in the series are about when those three characters all intersect together. Anytime that Miordine is in a scene with Lady Prospera, it's like a lightning scene because you're having the kind of core relationships in the show coalescing in one moment. There's only a couple times it happens over the course of the season, but it shows you where the focus is and the kind of thematic heart of the character dynamics is all rested in those three characters. Yeah, and you know, Gundam has had countless great, you know, female characters over the years from the very first show on to today, and I think Yoshiki Tomino's shows are this interesting evolution where particularly starting with Zeta Gundam, I think the supporting cast becomes predominantly female up to mm-hmm. like I think Turn A Turn A really should be considered a show with two protagonists, um, you know, because you really do have the one in the mobile suit and then you have um uh, Diana and and Soriel and all of that. Um, and so you have those two, and then up to G Reco, where you have your main boy, and then almost everyone of substance around him is a girl, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of, or at least on the ship that he's on. Um, but I think you watch G Witch and you realize that there is just something very materially different when your point of view, when your mediating force for all those relationships is also a girl, right? And it just does create a different kind of show where, like, you know, something like, uh, you know, Turn A Gundam has probably as many important female characters, but it is still, and and if that show, that maybe that's a bad show to use because gender is such a complicated thing in that show. Uh-huh. But, you know, maybe, maybe G-Reco is a better one. You do still have your sort of normal teen boy in the middle of it as sort of your mediating force. And that is not the case with G-Witch, and it's something that's that's cool about it. And, you know, Suleta is just 
instantly from episode one one of the coolest best most interesting funniest protagonists this show has ever had and you know gundam has has never lacked for great protagonists there's only a couple of shows where the protagonist is is a lesser part of it uh build divers and gundam wing basically right mm-hmm. um even even gundam seed destiny I like Sheen. The problem is the show, yeah. not Sheen, right? Um, they did. Sheen is great. The show sucks. The show fails Sheen. Um, but yeah, I fucking love Suleta. Do you want to just like dive in on her a little bit more since she is the the star of our show? Sure. Yeah. I mean, with her, obviously, like you have to give massive uh, credit to Ichinose Kana, who is the voice actress that plays Suleta. Um, she, uh, the first big role she had, and actually it's the first role I've found that she's credited in. I'm sure she probably was in smaller stuff, but stuff that just doesn't get credited in ways that are easy to find. Um, but she played one of the main characters in Darling in the Franks. She played Ichigo in that show. Um, that show I think is, uh, has a complicated legacy, uh, and has some good stuff about it and a lot of bad stuff about it. Um, Darling in the Franks, um, a show I don't think we'll ever cover on this podcast because, or on Japan Animation <laughs> Station. But she's good in it. Like, I like Ichigo as a character. Um, and it's a good performance, particularly for, like, uh, was effectively a novice uh, say, or uh, voice actor at the time. Um, and then she's been in quite a few other things since then. She was Tuesday in uh, Carolyn Tuesday. She's uh, Maki, the uh, basically the cousin to Kaguya-sama in Kaguya-sama Love is War. Um, that character is mostly in the background for the first two seasons, but she gets lots of good stuff in season three. Um, so it's like she's been here or there, um, but, you know, she's fairly young. And so her main career starts about five years ago because, uh, yeah, Darling of the Franks was in 2018. So this is definitely her biggest role as a main character. I mean, it's hard to get much bigger than the protagonist of a Gundam show. Right. Um, and she does such a good job, both as Saleta, like obviously the performance is phenomenal because the character is asked to do a lot there's a lot of range to her as we're talking about it like you both have to do the kind of comic stuff and the socially awkward stuff but you also have to like project that kind of confidence and that power when she's piling the mobile suits and she's in the fights and she plays the whole breadth of the character so well but also as someone who's been like listening to the kind of radio podcast thing they do the promotional show they do um and, and seeing some of the youtube videos they've put out and stuff promoting the show obviously as a protagonist or the actor playing the protagonist for a show like this, a big part of her job is being that kind of shepherd for the show and advertising it and like that kind of public image. And she's so good in that capacity as well. Like if you listen to the the radio show that she's on or like find clips of it that have been translated into English, like she, it's so much fun to listen to her talk about the show um, because she clearly like loves it so much and loves it like as a fan and the way she can like she breaks down scenes and thinks about the character dynamics and stuff like that like it's clear that she has like a really sharp eye on the dynamics of how the show and the characters work um, and, it, and it's my favorite part of listening to those um, podcast episodes basically every every Sunday which luckily they're still doing um, even when the show is off between the two seasons they're still doing them every Sunday um, that's cool yeah yeah, so like she's so good in this role, both as the character and as like that kind of public face for the show. She just like I think knocks it out of the park for the whole thing that someone like this has asked to shoulder for a show this big. It's a star-making performance. As yeah. uh, I was gonna say, many virtually all Gundam protagonist roles have been uh-huh. at a certain point have been big star-making performances. Even sometimes for characters we don't like as much, you know, um, it's it's incredible, and I think she is tremendous in this in multiple modes. 
you know, so much of this is also comic. Like she is by far the funniest Gundam protagonist. She yeah. produces the most laughter. A lot of that is down to the animation. And I think you cannot praise the character animation on Suleta enough for how much performance is in there. And you've talked about that already, Sean, with just like how they use sort of her height and how she holds herself and how she moves around spaces, but just in her voice, like she has so much fun with the part and inhabiting that character. And when things get more serious, like in episode four, when she, we sort of see a hopeless side of her for the first time, um, she is incredible there. I think in the final stretch of episodes where she starts having some major insecurities, there are just some absolute heartbreaking line readings that she has. Like when she's alone in like the zero G bathroom with her drink because she didn't get one of the chicken yeah. dinners that were being given out and she's too shy to say anything. Um, no, it is a, it, I, I suspect that Kana Ichinose will be a major force in voice acting for decades to come because that's the kind of role uh, that this is, that this just exposes that like, okay, she's the kind of person we are going to see starring in a lot of stuff. This is a tremendous performance. Yeah, and it's fun for me because I talked about on the, the weekly stuff segment um, for this episode that I'm playing the Tsukihime remake visual novel, which has uh, full voice acting. They recast all the characters because, you know, all the old actors from the old animated, so that's like 20 years ago. Um, and she plays Hisui, who's one of the main characters in Tsukihime. Um, and when I noticed that, I was like, yes, awesome. Uh, this, yeah, I, I feel like I've been on the Ichinose Kana kick because all Shishu plays a main character, one of the main characters on an anime called Do It Yourself. I've watched about six episodes of on Crunchyroll, and that's very good. So yeah, yeah, she's just like a great actress, but this performance in particular, um, yeah, it's it's phenomenal. And just the character is saying like, there's some of those scenes um, are so where where you see that like the weaker side of her are so effective, and particularly it's for me the it's it's after the whole thing in the bathroom, and there's the chase, and Miodine yes. like finally gets her, and Sleta has this, and she says like. Sleta, like, come on, like, move forward, just, like, move forward like an idiot, like an annoying idiot, like you always do, right? It's like, if you retreat, you get one. If you advance, you get two, right? Come on, like, do it like you always do. And Sleta has this moment where she just says, I can't, like, I can't always do that. The reason why I say it is because it's scary. Every time I try to move forward, it's scary. And so that's why I have to say I can't be like you all the time. Um, and that moment like hit me like a fucking truck because you feel it so much. Cause I, you know, her character is so relatable like that. Like, I think everybody has had a moment like that moment where she realizes that her lunch isn't there or whatever. And is like, I don't want to bother anybody with this. And she feels like, kind of like, Oh, like I, I, I can't be here. She needs, she wants to like become invisible. And I think that's the thing that everyone can relate to. But then also when you get that kind of underneath the surface, of that confidence, it, that that notion is like I can't just do that all the time. You know that that that's uh, she's not a superhero or whatever, and can just flip it on and um be super confident that it's her convincing herself to be like that. Um, I think that line in that moment in that scene, you really see the full depth of her as a character and how tragic then it is that like that kind of very human part of her is clearly being kind of stamped down by Lady Prospera and everything that's happening with Seleta as she gets into the fight in episode 12. Um, but there's a real rich humanity to Seleta and so many sides to her in this like really well-observed um, sort of emotional state of that awkwardness and that nervousness and that loneliness that she has and how, how, how deep that goes, like how deep that can like hurt somebody um, 
and and how invisible that hurt can be as she you know has to say like i can't just do it all the time this is like because that's because it scares the shit out of me yeah i know the you know the very final scene of this season has gotten maybe a lion's share of attention because of how shocking it is and it is a brilliant ending and turn but for my money easily the best scene on this show so far is the one you're talking about where Mm -hmm. she they have that chase where suleta is running away from mirene rather than talking to her mirene grabs one you've got just tremendous tremendous animation i i've never seen zero g animation in this or any other show done that well where like yeah I know I shouldn't say weight because you don't have weight in space, but like the mass of the characters and their bodies in motion and all of that is so finely considered. Uh, And then, you know, culminates in this scene where they are up hugging against this glass, having this conversation. You have Mirine also breaking, because Mirine is also a tremendously confident character in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. right? She is a very standoffish character. She has kind of a tsundere archetype in that sense. And then you have this just breakdown of of how much of a source of strength Suleta is for her you have that part where she's just like punching against Suleta's chest to try to say like you don't understand I'm doing all these things that I hate because I love you is like the basic like underpinning of that because you give me strength um and it is just you know one uh I love that Gundam F91 you know, may have may have failed in life, but in death, it is the most enduring image in the, in the yep. history of Gundam. Is just two bodies in space floating, uh, embraced. It's so beautiful. You get it all the time. This is one of the best versions of it in Gundam history. Um, and yeah, just as an exchange between these two characters, who I think we've come to love, really clarifying that relationship. Both actors, and we'll talk about Lin in a second, who is also extraordinary in this. Um, it's just that for me is the height of this show. It's one of the best anime moments from the last year. It's so good. Yeah, it's amazing. And yeah, and it's everything around that moment and building up to it. Because I also love Mr. Cool and Mr. Hot, the uh, the keychains that uh, Sleta yes. buys from Yorine um, also, which apparently they actually have like merchandised those in Japan, which tells you have. like how how smart the people making this show is are either because they knew that that would become a funny meme because the audience memed that shit as soon as it happened in episode 10 um and so they're like oh we're gonna have that in the pipe that we are gonna actually like make these or they were able to turn around so quick to start like to create some sort of deal to actually like make and sell those things fast enough because it was like a week or two after that episode they started selling them um but it's like the people making this show are very very smart at making money (laughs) because it's like that all those little moments that like grab your attention like the little keychains and stuff like that um i think they the audience gets so involved in it and then the show knows how to kind of push forward with those kinds of things and embrace that larger identity that the show that the audience makes for the show absolutely um but with everything we're talking about with suleta there's also something up with her And I think we should talk about this because I'm so curious. I did not catch on my first viewing the math problem of Suleta Mm -hmm. Mercury, but I caught it on my second viewing, which is that um, the Vanitas Institute incident, which is the events of the prologue where uh, Katedera is created. And, you know, this is basically where... um, uh, uh, what's it? What's his the father's name? Delling. Um, yeah, Delling Rembrandt basically comes to power and goes and kills everyone at the Vanitas Institute, who are all the people we know. That's where Suleta and her parents are. That's where Suleta's dad dies. All of that. There are, I think, two specific occasions, but the one that I noticed is in episode uh, seven. Shall we Gundam? 
is 21 years ago. And we get that as a hard date. It's 21 years ago. They also are very specific to name Suleta's age, which you don't always actually get in Gundam. You get you get a sense of how old the character is, but someone saying out loud, I am X number of years old, in the pilot, in the premiere, she says, I'm 17 years old. So we know she is 17. She was four years old because it was her birthday. Eri, uh, Eric, um, what are their original last name? Uh, Eric like, Samaya. Yeah, Samaya. It, it is Eri's fourth birthday in the prologue, which means that Eri would be 25 years old in the present. Selena Mercury is 17. What is going on? And I remember noticing that, and I just made a tweet like, that's an intentional mystery, right? There's not, am I, I was worried for a second, like, am I missing something really simple? Am I wrong about what the Vanitas incident was? Is it like, is this some kind of like weird gravity time distortion thing going on here? But no, it is a mystery. The math does not add up. And when you add that to Lady Prospera, is fucking up to something and everything else. Uh, there are some very dark potential implications going on here, Sean, and I am worried we are going to get some real heartbreak for uh, Miss Suleta Mercury in the in the episodes to come. Yeah, because yes, so there is there is a mystery here about the relationship between Suleta and Ari, the little girl in the prologue, because I think you're meant to expect that they would be the same person, because. It's the daughter of, uh, you know, uh, Noria Same or whatever her name is, uh, but Lady Prospera. Um, and and it's just the film language of going from the prologue, yeah. little red-haired girl voiced by Kana Ichinose, to episode one, bigger red-haired girl voiced by Kana Ichinose, same mother, all of that. You know, the, the show wants you to believe that. Yes, and there's like imagery in the opening and ending themes that obviously like pairs them together and stuff. So it's like the natural assumption would be this is an older version of that character. But there are things like that that make it seem like that would have to be impossible. Um, there are lots of fan theories. Like the thing that my guess is, this is my thing that I think that they're going for. I think she's a clone or something like that of the girl from the prologue, Ari. And that Ari is basically Ariel. Um, that Because there is also imagery, particularly in the Ellen episode where she defeats Ellen in the duel. Where Ellen, they, there's some sort of new type-esque mind meld type thing happens and he sees all the uh bits that the ariel has as like these sort of spectral children and hears their voices of them laughing um and we know that that sleda can communicate with the ariel she can talk to it and the ariel is effectively alive like it it has thoughts it can think and it can communicate and it can respond to people um and so my guess is that something happened with like when Ari was in the Gundam in the prologue that she's her consciousness or whatever is in the machine and that the aerial we have is like a modified version of that original Gundam for the prologue. That is my guess. Um, and that she, that effectively the aerial is Saleta's older sister, because also there is a lot of very intentionally written dialogue with Lady Prospera where yes. she refers to her daughters or refers to her daughter and it is not always clear, is she referring to Saleta? Is she referring to Ariel? Is she referring to both of them? Um, and it's like, it's very particular how it's written. And then there's also the scene um, when Saleta uh, is in the Earth Dorm. And this is actually a scene where the Crunchyroll subtitles are wrong with how they translated this. Where she's having a conversation to the Earth girl who has the Ouija board looking thing or whatever. And she's doing the fortune telling. 
Um, and she's like fortune telling Sleda's relationships. And she says like, oh, like this represents your mom. And it like, it's clearly a really big presence in your life. Um, your dad doesn't seem to be here. And Saleta says like, I don't remember my dad. There's a lot of stuff like that where it feels like Saleta would be able to vaguely remember her father. She would be able to vaguely remember the weird girl, the the like professor lady the who clearly like Ari and her were really close in the prologue. Um, but Saleta doesn't recognize her when she's the video of her. But then the girl with the fortune telling also says, oh, there's this thing here. Do you have like a sibling or something? The Crunchyroll subtitles translated it as brother, but the word is kyodai, which is, which can specifically mean brother, but in general is a non-gendered term that can just mean sibling. And so the clear, and, and Sled is like, I don't know what that means. Like, I don't know what that's referring to. And to me, like the implication is like, I think it's clearly Ariel, whether or not that also means it is the spirit of her older sister slash like original, if she's a clone, Ari. That's not necessarily confirms that directly, but clearly, like, the Ariel is effectively a sibling to Sleta. They have been raised as siblings. They are both daughters of Lady Prospera. This is also reinforced by, if you have read the um, sort of little, like, uh, prequel novel. Like, it's not really a novel. It's like a couple of, it's like a chapter, basically. But they, they released this official thing that is called Cradle Planet, and it's translated into English as well. And it just tells a, like this little kind of snapshot of a story of Saleta before she goes and kind of building up to her going to the Academy. But it's all narrated from Ariel's point of view. And Ariel calls Lady Prospera mom. Um, so all of that stuff to me builds up this idea that I think that Ariel is Aerie from the prologue whose soul is tied to this machine in some way. This is, this is yes. why everyone's afraid of the Gundams. This is why they're called witches. Like this is the fear. It's not just that it will take the life of the pilots, but that like you will become, you will ascend your human form and you will become some sort of conscious being as all anime eventually leads to you become some sort of like weird conscious transhumanist entity and that she is tied to this machine. Yes. So let's put a pin in that for a second and make sure we come back to those transhumanist themes and what's going on with the Gundams because there's so much interesting stuff going on there, right? Uh, but going back to, to your theory, which I think is the popular fan theory here, mm -hmm. and I definitely believe it, because there's so many little pieces in the show that on, a, on first blush are just playful. Like if you have Lady Prospera saying, oh, hello, my sweet daughters, talking about Ariel and Suleta. That doesn't have to mean anything sinister. That can sound just like a playful, I made you because you are my literal flesh and blood daughter, and I made you because I built this mobile suit, you're my daughter's, haha, -ha, right? That can be a playful thing. The fact that Aerie is the first <laughs> syllable of Ariel is yes. not a, is not a uh, coincidence, but can also be a fun little nod if you don't have these other pieces in there. And when you start doing the math and thinking about it and seeing all these other pieces you're seeing, Sean, that's when it starts to come together that, oh no, these are not just playful little things. This is part of a larger plot. And this is where you have to bring in Lady Prospera because, uh, one, we got our first female Char clone, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think we've had another... Exactly. Am I wrong on that? I don't think so. I think the closest you get is like Lady Kawaguchi from Build Fighters Try is maybe like the closest we get to a female shark clone. But that's in the context of there's already been Meiji Kawaguchi, who is yes. a normal shark clone. Yeah. Um, and I think what is so fascinating about Lady Prospera is that she is at once 
one of the straightest versions of the Shar archetype in that it is someone who was seriously wronged by the lead villain of the series, has donned an alternate identity and a flamboyant mask, and is now engaged in a very elaborate years-long revenge plot. That is Shar to a T. Most Shar yes. clones actually don't have those pieces. They mostly are just the mask and a general attitude, but not actually recreating the story. You know, Gundam Wing is, is the most direct because they just do all of the Shar story. But you do get all of that with Lady Prospera. The twist on it is that this is a woman and this is a mother. And then you have to ask yourself, what if Shara's novel had ever had children? And you are horrified to realize, yeah, it would probably look like this. And I would be very scared for those children because Shara's novel, the Shar type, um, is fairly narcissistic and doesn't necessarily use, uh, just love people unconditionally, but uses them. And as nice as Lady Prospera seems on the surface in some scenes, uh, I think, I think Siletta is going to learn some horrible things about her mother. Yeah. I mean, there definitely, it feels like Lady Prospera cares a lot more about Ariel than she does Siletta. Like, yes. that's the read I get. Like, that's, I think, one of the reasons why some of that dialogue is so, like, sort of vague when she uses the word daughter. I mean, she definitely specifically refers to Siletta as her daughter um, unambiguously multiple times. Um, but there are also times where it feels like she's using the word daughter more preferably to refer to Ariel than she is Celeta when when it's the two of them together it feels like the word daughter is like more associated with Ariel directly in a way that becomes more like heavy as the show goes on um but yeah I think Lady Prospera is one of those things of the show that like really took me aback like I just wasn't expecting uh because you know we know this character from the prologue um, and I was not expecting that character to come back as your shark clone was like really crazy in episode two when when Lady Prosperous shows up. Although technically she's actually in the background of episode one, which obviously couldn't have noticed the first time I watched it. But she's in right. She's because she's part of like the big um, uh, like conglomerate or whatever, but the Benerit conglomerate that everyone's a part of. So she's like a part of this whole business venture as well. Um, but Lady Prospera is like the most legit shark clone you know she really does embody i think all of the fundamental elements of that shark character in a way that you know as we've noted throughout most of our lisa gundam stuff like most of those shark clones just don't do it um or if they try to do it it's as you said it's like gundam wing and they're just copying literally the plot points directly but are missing the whole kind of fundamental point of the character um and lady prospera Every scene she's in, it's just like fucking ice runs down your spine because you're you both like see why uh, Saleta idolizes her the way that she does, and also how scary that is, and also like how kind of unfathomable what Lady Prospera is trying to do is. Like she's clearly not even just straightforwardly trying to get revenge on Delling. Because there's that scene in episode 10 or 11 where she's meeting with him and there's some sort of project called Quiet Zero that they are both working on and he knows who Lady Prospera is. Um, so it's like, what the fuck is Lady Prospera's deal is a thing that this show, I think, has so far managed incredibly well to like build up the suspense of not seeing where is this character going? Like, what is she actually trying to do is a thing we really have kind of no idea about yet. Yeah, and I would say, if we're going into theorizing, it sure seems to me 
like the big bad of this show is Lady Prospera, yeah, not I Delling think. Rembrandt. Because one of the things that, and this was very much a, you know, first viewing versus second viewing thing for me. Yeah. Where on the first viewing, I mean, Delling checks every box of your normal dickhead Gundam villain, right? He is an old man with a deep voice who runs an evil company, who kills people, blah, blah, blah. But you actually see he and Miorine have a more complicated relationship than I think you assume at first, where she is yeah. so angry at this guy. She so wants to throw off those reins. He is so cold and distant from her. But I think, you know, in episodes like Shelby Gundam, in some of the final episodes where she is then, you know, working with him for Gundam Inc., you start to see he is quiet and he is distant, but he is not necessarily cruel to her. Like mm-hmm. he does, I think, I think he expects big things of her. And he could clearly be a much, much, much better father. But when she has this pitch for the Gundarm thing, and when she goes up to him and she has the correct read of, I know what will get these people on board with my company, and I know what I have to do, and I know what the thing holding me back is, which is my pride, you suddenly realize that is not a Delling Rembrandt problem in that moment. That is Miorine's own hangups, which when she sheds them, he immediately gives her what she needs and then is working with her in subsequent episodes. And the finale involves him being targeted for assassination, almost dying, and her saving his life. Mm-hmm. And that to me reads as that is meant to be a much more complicated relationship than it looks like at first blush. I don't necessarily think Delling is a good guy, but I think there is much more there. And because we don't fully know the nature of the Gundams, it is still entirely possible that he has more of a moral high ground on these things than we are aware of. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, it seems very cold and calculating. I think there's even a version where you could read it as this guy doesn't actually care about stopping the Gundams. He cares about owning them because that is clearly the goal of other people in the Benerit group. But his motivations are still fairly unclear because he is quiet and distant. And so you have that. And then over here you have Lady Prospera, who is on the surface much warmer to her daughter. Suleta has a much closer relationship. Is Her whole catchphrase of advance, or retreat gain one, advance gain two comes from her mom. She idolizes her mom. It's clearly much warmer, but as you go along, her Lady Prosper's motivations become much, much more unclear, and her entire affect seems cold and distant and wrong. I think the big wrench in the works there is during the Shelby Gundam episode, where one, Lady Prosper is just out of the room while Suleta is being grilled mm-hmm. on whether or not this thing is a Gundam. All of that goes down. Lady Prospera comes back in and and Suleta's like, but mom, is it a Gundam? Is it not? Why did you never tell me? She's like, oh yeah, of course it's a Gundam. And just lied to her daughter this entire time, never gives an explanation, never gives an apology. Uh, And then of course you get one of, I think, maybe the legitimately most chilling moments in Gundam history, which is in the finale, when she basically gives her daughter a motivational speech on the positive value of murder, which is crazy. It's like... It's a version of a speech we've heard in other shows, not just Gundam shows, of like, you have to fight because if you don't fight, the people you love could be hurt. But it is it is so clearly not a sincere version of that speech. It is not a like actual, because I does Lady Prosper give a fucking shit about Miorine? Probably not. And instead it feels very, very manipulative of, hey kid, you're ignoring your programming. Get back in the robot. 
uh, it's it's much it's much closer to like Shinji and his dad than you know in Evangelion or something than I think what you would expect at the beginning, uh, and it's it's one of the things I'm most interested in for the rest of this show because it is so playing with Gundam types and anime types in such an interesting fashion as much of this show is, um, but I love that at the end of this season it's so unsettled where we're even kind of looking at for the antagonistic force. Yeah, like really Lady Prospera does feel like what if Gendo was good at dealing with Shinji rather than like yeah. an idiot. You know, like, right. like Gendo is so bad at getting what he needs or wants from his son. Um, and, he, you know, Gendo is definitely like in actuality a lot closer to Delling, Rembrandt, right? In terms of like their actual characterization, if not necessarily their role in the like the structure of the show. But Lady Prospera is so good at getting Sleta to feel or believe what Lady Prospera needs her to, um, to be able to like override whatever fears or misgivings that Sleta might have to the point where she like happily splats a dude um, at the end of the show. Um, and yeah, there's, there is something very almost like satanic about the character in that way, that she is pulling Sleta deeper and deeper into this darkness while all the while being framed angelically. And that's one of the things that's powerful about that scene is that one, it is straight up playing like an inspirational um, instrumental version of Shikufuku, the opening theme song, which is like anime shorthand for this is like the powerful speech that like yes. you need that you need in order to overcome your your issues as a protagonist. And it's being given in a scene that is also coded very visually directly of she is Sleda is stepping over the boundary of a doorway into blood like is there's the blood spurt that is on the ground and she's stepping onto it as she crosses that threshold so it's like you know musically and like in terms of the way that lady prosper is framed in the scene it's supposed to be so inspirational but all the context of the writing and some of those other shots with the blood and everything juxtapose it in this way that is really unsettling um, and all through this, you have this incredible vocal performance by uh, Mamiko Noto, who we have heard recently, though this podcast is not out yet, but she is Asagami Fujino in the Kata no Kyokai series, um, the, the girl with the, the twisty powers, <laughs> let's call her. Um, and, and Mamiko Noto is in like a million things she's in. We'll eventually hit her one of her big roles in Clannad when we do our Annie stuff. Um, she is the Hell Girl from Hell Girl, Jigoku Shoujo. Um, she's in a million things. She's just like a great voice actress. She's also in Tsukihime. Um, so I've been hearing a lot of both uh, uh, mother and daughter in, in that visual novel. Uh, but the performance she gives as Lady Prospera, the like unflappable nature of that character and the like icy, super controlled way that she uses her voice, that even when she's saying something pleasant, it just gets under your fucking skin. And particularly that scene in Shall We Gundam where she's talking to Miodine and she's like just poking her with these little barbs about like her pride and all this. And she starts laughing at her um, saying like, oh, like, you know, you're saying all this shit about your dad. Uh, but then when I look at your beautiful clothes and I look at this like special room you get to live on in the academy and this and that and the other thing, I just think how how silly, how strange it all is. She just uses the word okashi uh, in Japanese. And it's just she's very technically polite with everything that she's saying. But the really pointed way she's saying it is like it's like legitimately just like upsetting to hear. 
Um, and I think that that is probably, honestly, my favorite vocal performance in the whole show is Mami Kanoto as Lady Prosper because it's like she's a very veteran voice actress and it just feels like she's bringing everything she has to bear for this incredibly juicy, really layered, very scary villain character um, that is very reminiscent of characters we've seen before with Char, but this is another one where we're flipping the gender of the character and making Char a female character, as you also said, like making her a mother, um, like that really changes the context of Char um, and like having, because there's definitely a sort of a woman in a man's world aspect to the Lady Prospera character that that adds this very different dynamic to why she is scary and why she is as intimidating as she is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I'm just looking through. I have a set of screenshots just from these last couple episodes that I'm looking through just to have some of the dialogue and to have some inspiration as we're talking. And that scene where she gives the the inspirational murder speech, the framing in it is just so good. And you already talked about this a little bit, but you have basically three or four major shot setups in this scene. You have, you know, on Lady Prosper herself from Suleta's point of view, where you are low to the ground looking up at her. You have Prospera looking down at Suleta. You have this side shot that I think is very striking of Suleta is sitting in this dark doorway behind the, the sort of door line. You know, uh, Prospera is standing up straight outside of that door line. The door line itself is covered in blood. And so you have this very clear division where Prospera is standing like literally in the light there are big you know led panels above her it's a shining light on her uh, you know um Suleta is sort of sitting in darkness alone she's huddled you know lady, lady prospera is is tall and is open and at certain points she kneels down and is very close with her daughter um you have the sort of dynamic shot near the end of Suleta. i know you're ready to move forward and offering out her hand like an angel and then there is that just killer quietly one of the smartest and most chilling shots in the history of Gundam, I think, of Suleta taking the step. One foot is out sort of in the darkness of the space she had been in. One foot is now stepping down onto the big blood splatter as she says the line, I have moved forward. You know, that is the kind of stuff that it's so interesting. They're using all these pieces of film language to give you sort of um, mixed signals, right? To tell you the inspirational version of this and the, oh my God, no, Suleta, stay in the closet. This is bad. Don't go out there. Your mom does not have your best interests at heart. Look at that mask. She is, I think that mask operates the same way as Char's mask does at a certain point where it, it is no longer there to protect the identity. It is there because it projects a certain inscrutability that is to their advantage. It's so good. It's such interesting stuff. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. And there's a there's some a few other points I really want to hit with Lady Prospera. One is um uh there there are layered throughout the whole show and Lady Prospera is the most direct one. There are multiple references to the Shakespeare play The Tempest um which who's the main character of The Tempest is a guy named Prospero who is a magician who is uh sort of marooned on this island who used to be I think he was a duke in like Milan or something like that and he was betrayed and he ended up marooned on this island he has his daughter Miranda there um and then the target of his vengeance also ends up marooned on that island partially because I believe Prospero uses a spell to like cause their ship to shipwreck on the island as well um, and then ultimately the target of his vengeance, the guy who outed him, ousted him in Milan, 
um, that guy's son and his daughter, Miranda, they fall in love and get married. And at the end of the play, that is like avoids the, the potential tragedy where Prospero gives up on his vengeance because he cares more about his daughter's love and all that kind of stuff. And then there's like other stuff that goes on in the plot. But that's like the basic broad plot. And so Lady Prospera, early on in the season, it was a lot like very easy to match her onto Prospero very directly because Prospero is he's an interesting character because I think he is portrayed directly in the play or it feels like the text portrays him ultimately as being meant to be a heroic character. But you're kind of uncomfortable with him being portrayed as a heroic character in many ways. And I think like Lady Prospera gets that and there's early on you're kind of on her side in that way but then they push her really far by the time you get to the end of the season to this like terrifying villain territory where it now feels like you know that she is kind of off the rails of that projected plot of the tempest that like i don't see any version of this story where lady prosper is like giving up on whatever her goal is i don't even know if her goal is revenge anymore is how like sort of terrifying she is um, some of the other references to the Tempest are like Ariel. So Ariel in the Tempest is a fairy or like a sprite that Prospero uses um, that was that lived on the island and Prospero effectively enslaves Ariel. It's one of the things that makes him like feel like I don't think you could read him totally as a hero character because he enslaves this magical being um, and makes it do magic for him. Um, that obviously Ariel is then the same name as the Gundam in here. Um, one of the major things though that's interesting to me that there are these like very clear, very specific references to the Tempest, but the most famous part of the Tempest is Caliban, who is the monster that lives on the island, and his mother Sycorax, who is a witch, um, who doesn't actually is dead by the time the play starts, but her like sort of spirit more effect more or less overhangs the whole play. Um, and there's no direct references to Caliban or Sycorax yet, and I'm very curious to see. Like, how, if they're going to go deeper with this Tempest stuff, there are also other Shakespeare references. They reference Romeo and Juliet in probably my favorite piece of dialogue in the show we'll get to. Um, there's also, like, a character who is referred to as, his name is, like, Hamlet or something. So it's like, there are some other Shakespeare references in there. But they're going pretty deep with some Tempest stuff. And I'm really curious if we're going to get, like a dope-ass mobile armor named Sycrax or something. Like, like, where are they going to go? How is Caliban going to show up? Is Guel going to be Caliban? Is kind of one of my pet theories is that he's going to be ultimately paired off of that character. Um, but that's, that's like, uh, that's one of those things where being an English major, that when, when Lady Prospera showed up, my, my definitely my eyebrows perked up because it's the thing they were like, is there a Tempest thing? And you get deeper and like, yeah, they're definitely doing some Tempest shit. Um, but, but the jury is out on like how far that's going to go. Um, past that kind of setup stuff. I wouldn't be surprised if they go deeper with it. There's a lot of interesting stuff here. And I do have to say, uh, just Tempest is not a Shakespeare play I have been super familiar with formerly. Uh, but just looking at the Wikipedia page and all of the names, this is just a great list of names for mobile suits. That's yep. all I can say about that. There's a lot of characters there you could make some sick-ass mobile suits out of. And I do, I like this idea quite a bit. Um Let's talk about, for a second, we'll get back to some of the other characters in a minute here, but while we're kind of on this broad set of topics, the whole notion of the Gundams in this show and kind of the transhumanist qualities here of, you know, this is established force in the prologue and we talked about it a little there, but this is a world where we have effectively like, I guess it's a little unclear to me whether there are governments at all, but basically there is just the world seems to be ruled by different sort of groups of corporations, right? 
who mm-hmm. invent various kinds of which because they're all these corporations are inventing various kinds of mobile suits and weapons and stuff seems to me to imply there's quite a bit of war going out there that we are not privy to yet right yeah. and there are probably other conflicts we will be introduced to at some point um but the gundams at the time of the prologue with the whole vanitas institute had been a thing for medical research for prosthetics we know you know lady prospera has her prosthetic arm that is a piece of gundam research um and then we have uh the gundams themselves start to be made they destroy the minds of the pilots and take their lives and this is the at the very least pretext that Delling Rembrandt uses to come in take over the Benerit group uh he had previously been a military commander and he takes over the corporation and creates Katedera and decides as he says at the end of the prologue we will deny all Gundams and is we're going to put a prohibition on that no more of that technology when we get to the actual timeline of which for Mercury 21 years later, Gundams are very forbidden. But, of course, you have a bunch of the different corporations we learn over the course of the season are experimenting with it on their own, including mm-hmm. the one Ellen Karras comes from. Um, and then we have the Ariel itself. And eventually we have uh, Gundarm Inc., which is the, uh, the organization Mirene and all her Earth friends and Suleta make together to try to bring that technology sort of back to its medical basis But there's a lot of questions opened by all of this, including, I think, after these first 12 uh, episodes plus the prologue, it is unclear, I think, what the show wants us to think about this technology. Whether, like, Mm -hmm. it is actually a positive thing that figures like Delling are trying to bend towards their own devices and that is why they are using violence for this. Or whether there is something, like, deeply wrong going on here. Uh, which might point to whatever the hell has happened to Aerie and all of that stuff. Uh, and Delling maybe is not as bad as we think. And it's something I'm very interested in and curious about. Is that a decent summary of, of all yeah. of this? Yeah, because we also know um, partially through some of the like uh, Ellen stuff that we have this show's version of cyber new types, right? We have these people who are modified to try to pilot these Gundams better than a normal person could do, but clearly it still causes them phenomenal pain. Like we see that with Ellen, and then we have your the two witches from Earth in the last three episodes that they also clearly are some kind of modified person that is meant to be able to withstand these higher permit scores, which the permit scores, from what I understand, just mean like how closely connected they are to the mobile suit. Um, and permit seems to be some sort of like mineral or some something that is like mined and used in the production of these mobile suits that allows the operation of the mobile suit. Um, and that, you know, when they get the higher permit scores, they have these weird glowing lines through their bodies and all that kind of stuff. And Saleta seems to be immune to it. Like she never, never is portrayed like with her physical body having any of those glowing lines on it. Um, obviously, she's only ever piloting Ariel. So Ariel might be. A piece of it as well, like Ellen notices there's something unusual or special about Ariel when he tries to pilot it, um, that it doesn't feel like it's like the dagger reaching into his brain that he kind of describes the normal Gundam feeling. Um, and that, you know, you have this notion that, you know, these higher permit scores, you know, they over, we learn in the finale episode that if you're like permit score four or higher, whatever it is, like that antidote thing that disabled the Gundams in the prologue doesn't work on you. So there's clearly this like kind of underground arms race around the Gundams and using them as these weapons and creating people that can pilot them more effectively to overcome the countermeasures that Katedra originally put in place in the prologue. 
Um, so yeah, I think there is this intentional tension at the heart of the show about the potential of whatever this technology is and who's using it and why they're trying to use it. Like, what are the goals of Lady Prospera? You've got the woman who's part of the Pale Company who did all the Ellen stuff that used to be part of the Bandit's Institute that starts helping Sleda and everyone at the Gundam Incorporation. Um, and, you know, she clearly, like, has is wants to get back to that medical application of it. Um, but, yeah, it is definitely one of those things that's really fascinating about the show is that I think you are far less settled at the end of this season than you were coming out of the prologue about whether or not the Gundam is good. Like, at the end of the prologue, I think you looked at, I felt like, I looked at Delling, and it was like, oh, this guy's a monster. Because he doesn't see, like, all the things that these Gundams can do, and he's using this as, like, a way to try to wrest power for himself as a part of this bigger corporation. Um, whereas now, it's definitely less sure. You know, he has that line to Miodine when she asks him to fund her company, where he tells her, like, the the weight of the curse of the Gundam is heavier than you think. Um, and there's a lot in that line that I feel like we don't really know the full context of what he means by that yet. Um, and it is a thing I'm curious to see how they develop this going forward. Like, what is some of the other side, probably, of the history of this technology? What is Delling's relationship to it? What is uh, Shadok's father's relationship, that he's the guy who's, like, most opposed, and he's, like, so anti-Gundam, he's shocked when Delling is like allowing this research to continue. Um, like what is that dude's whole deal? Like there's a lot about that side of the show that we don't yet know that feels like the show is setting up a bigger kind of either flashback arc or something that is about our characters starting to learn more about the past because so far that is one of the big things they don't know is the real history of everything that's kind of influencing the world that they live in right now. Yeah, this is part of why this so much feels like the first quarter of this mm -hmm. show, not yeah. the first half, is because I feel like at some point we're going to need the flashback arc, and that alone could take up a number of episodes, because there's a very complicated web of an older generation of characters going on here. But yeah, the whole thing with Delling is that he does seem to have an actual principled-like stance on the Gundam stuff. And I it does not necessarily... Because of what he allows Mirine to do... I don't know if it's principled in the sense of the technology itself cannot be used under any circumstances or if there is, he just knows where it can go wrong and that that's horrifying. It's also worth saying that over the course of the season, Delling is targeted by several groups and they seem to be much shittier people than he is, uh -huh. right? Like the Jaturk family are fucking weasels. And we see him like trying to like weed them out early on. And part of why Guel has like the pressure he has on him is because I feel like Delling kind of has that family's number and is trying to move against them and they keep trying to kill him, you know? Yeah. Um, and there's interesting stuff going on there. There's all the stuff with Shadik, who is an absolute schemer and his whole family. So it's all very unsettled, as you say. Uh, but the Gundam, you know, the, I'm very curious where this is all going because this is very much still in progress, but I, I like the ideas here. It's, it's a refashioning of ideas, obviously, that are there in Gundam from the beginning. You know, Tomino in the, in the early Gundams never really does the thing where the machine itself, like, has some kind of psychic link. The people themselves have their own kind of psychic energy in the new type stuff. But obviously, once you get into 90s and 2000s Gundams, you get more of that. This is sort of like a much less grungy version of what Iron-Blooded Orphans did, where mm -hmm. Iron-Blooded Orphans makes it literal, like, fucking, you know, links that are put in your back, and there's actual surgery, and it's a little different than the more sort of, like, I don't know, psychic cyber new type kind of stuff. But it's very interesting, and yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's it's a really fascinating part of the show. That is one of like the main things I'm I'm interested in seeing how it develops in the next uh, season. Yeah. All right, but uh, getting back on track, we we started our conversation about Suleta so long ago on this podcast, Sean, and somehow we haven't come back around and talked about her her uh, her bride, Miss Mirina yes. Rembrandt, who is also a wonderful part of this show. Yes, so she's voiced by Lynn, um, who is in also like a lot of stuff. I think her big role is yeah, she played the. I haven't actually seen this movie. I really need to get around to watching it. It's supposed to be very good, but the. Um, I want to eat your pancreas, the funniest title of a movie ever, uh, but it's supposed to be really good. Um, she is the main character in that show. Um, and then she's in quite a few other things um, that I've seen, right? She's also the teacher in uh, Boku Ben, which is a pretty decent modern rom-com. Um, but yes, uh, her role is Mirene. She knocks it out of the park. She's the other person. If people want to listen to that uh, official podcast, they do. She's the other. It's her and each knows Haikana in all the episodes, and she's really good and funny there as well um and miodine is you know um she's definitely our like resident sundere character but not in like a dismissive way in a way that like she really uses that character archetype so well and like a lot better than a lot of sundere characters do like there's so much um to her that you see and like it, it all goes back to that episode 11 scene that we were talking about of her you know desperately trying to flee and escape to earth and then her getting kind of tied down at the school through this relationship with Sleta, where she slowly, I think, finds in her relationship with Sleta the things that she wanted by fleeing to Earth. Like, we still don't really know why specifically she wants to go to Earth. Like, it's not just she wants to run away, that she wants to go to Earth. And that's like a thing that is so specific that Delling in a line of dialogue says that specifically that he references like he, when, when they lose sight of her or like their, her guard loses sight of Neodine, he's like, Oh, well I know she's just going to try to go to earth. Like we can get her eventually anyways. So it's like, there's something specific there that we don't yet know. I'm guessing it probably has something to do with her mom. Um, but yeah, but instead of just trying to run away, her relationship with slowly gives her this sort of like home at the school and then this company, as she slowly starts finding this confidence in herself, that is that relationship where, like, Miodine and Sleta are opposites, right? Miodine on the outside is so confident and so, like, brash and just so outspoken. But inside, she's clearly very, like, kind of brittle and fragile because her whole life she's been thrown around by her father um, willy-nilly, like, having her groom be decided by these duels and all this shit that she has had no say in. Um, and that's been her whole life, and she's never been able to do anything about it. Whereas Saleta externally seems very to lack confidence. She doesn't know how to talk to people. She's nervous whenever she's around people she doesn't know. But like when when shit gets real and like push comes to shove and like it comes time for her to act, Saleta is able to summon up that courage and has this like bedrock of something in her that allows her to advance forward that Miodine lacks. Um, and so that's one of the things that why that character pairing, I think, works so well is that they are those reflections of each other. And in episode 11, you see that and they're both able to kind of fill the gaps that the other person has, because that's also where Miodine's insecurities come out. And she has that great moment where she starts saying, you know, like, 
always be by my side, like never leave me and, you know, water my tomatoes like two times a day and make sure it's on the Andy setting and, you know, send me three emails every day. And like she just starts writing through. It's like, oh, and also clean my room every other day and all this stuff where she like, you know, it's intentionally written for her to be like this kind of like obnoxious, clingy girlfriend character um, and kind of like making a joke with that. But there is something there of, um, you know, that's so much of who she is, right? She is so brash. She's able to just decide things on a whim and like kind of push it forward. But underneath all of that, she is like so lonely and and covers all that up with this exterior she's created. I think if you look at, you know, the framing of that scene, I think for a lot of viewers, myself included, that might be the moment you first really realize that uh, Selena is quite a bit taller than Mirine. Mm -hmm. Like there's plenty of other scenes where you could see that, but there's something about that moment where Mirine has her head like buried in Suleta's chest and is hugging her and Suleta is taking on what in this image that is famous in Gundam of the two people floating in midair is the more masculine side of the, of the, you know, two people. And she is just, you realize, Oh, she's quite a bit taller than Mirine. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and you know, what you kind of see there is there is sort of, she does have that ability to give Mirine that like comfort and security that she really does kind of uh, of want. She wants someone she can rely on because she's never felt like she could rely on anybody. And Suleta wants to be relied on, you know, is, mm-hmm. is her insecurity in those closing episodes. Um, and yeah, it's a beautiful relationship. There's so much cool stuff there. Lynn's performance in that scene of, you know, the first request is stay by my side forever. And then it is, and don't ever lose a duel. And give the tomatoes more compost and use the Andes model and clean my room twice a week and email me three times a day. And I just love how she keeps like it becomes more and more childish as she says it. The animation on Suleta's face as she realizes this crazy list of tasks. Yeah. Um, it's so it's it's adorable. It's warm. It's wonderful. Uh, and, and also possibly tragic given what happens in the finale. Um, I love it. Yeah, it's it, she's an amazing character, and Miodine also gets all the best lines. Her dialogue is <laughs> so good, and she's the character that always gets lines that trend on Twitter. She has the Okataiwane line in episode one. She has like one of the big ones is in episode two. Um, she says she calls her dad Dabusta Oyaji, um, which is like you do you like Dabusta is double standard, but it's like you hypocritical piece of shit dad. Kaso means shit <laughs> literally. Um, and that that word went trending very quickly. It's very fun to say um, uh, <laughs> that that's one where I don't think they fully anticipated in time how popular that line was going to be because uh, uh, Lady Prospera quotes it to me or Dine later on, but she doesn't use the exact line. I feel like she, cause she says something like, Ksoyaji, but she doesn't put the Dubasta in there. It's like if they had known before they got into that episode and they had seen the full reaction, I bet they would have rewritten it. Um, have they put it on a mug yet? Like instead of a world's greatest dad mug, you have the <laughs> dubstep so OG mug. <laughs> oh my God. If I was ever become a father, I'm going to get one of those. <laughs> Sean, if you, if you ever become a dad, I will promise I will get you one of those. All right. A hypocritical <laughs> piece of shit father. Um, it's so good. Uh, but my favorite line, Miyuri's best line, just because like it's such a genius use of Japanese is in the episode where uh, Saleta goes on the date with Ellen 
Um, and without me <laughs> yeah. knowing, and she comes say. runs in. She yells out this line where she says, "Nomi Judy um, which means like, if you Romeo and Juliet on me, I will never forgive you, or I won't, I won't let you get away with that. But the way she says it in Japanese is so funny because she uses this weird. They like have made up this word where they they contracted Romeo and Juliet to Nomi Judy, which you would do for if you're referring to the play, you don't want to give it the full title. But instead of using the Japanese, like, sort of handy verb of sudo, to do, and it's like, if you do a Romeo and Juliet, is normally, I think, how you'd say that right line, Nomi Judy, shtada, yudis and ikadane, like, if you do a Romeo and Juliet, I won't forgive you. Instead, Miyunini, like, turns to Romeo and Juliet, she just makes that a verb. And so there's, like, she conjugates it as a verb. And there's, like, an implied verb of, like, Domi Judy do to Romeo and Juliet that's there that she <laughs> conjugates into Domi Judy Tada. Um, and it's so funny. And as soon as you hear it, like it's just such a sharp piece of writing in Japanese that again, that like immediately went trending in Japanese Twitter because it's so funny. Um, it's such like a creative use of language and it just like kind of comes out of nowhere, but it's it's great. And just Miyodine has that. Like every single episode, she's got a scene like that where she gets this really sharp one-liner or she gets this good gag like the, like, you know, call me three times a day and all that stuff. Um, it's just, you know, the writers, the writers for the show um, just when you get a, when you get a Miyodine line, you know it's going to be a fucking banger basically every time. <laughs> it's so good. And, uh, you know, season two, they'll have had time to hear the fan feedback. So who yes. knows what kind of one-liner she's going to get next time. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. And, you know, I think also her performance in the final scene that yes. you know, we're all we're still kind of dancing around. But when um, Suleta squishes that dude like a tomato and her, she basically has two words to Suleta, which is this, this you know, or two phrases, you know, like, how, how could you do that? And then calling her Hitogurashi murderer. And just like the abject fear the animation does this as well but the abject fear that she instills in her voice like making the character sound alien to us because of what she's seeing is is chilling it's one of the things that sells that scene so i mean every aspect of that scene sells that scene it's a perfect scene but definitely one of them yeah yeah absolutely and then also her character design is just amazing we already talked about the yeah. the height difference which is genius like um, all the character design of the show is genius, but her like crazy hair with this weird like sort of quaff that's like she has this very like kind of bird like appearance to me with like like weird hair and yeah she's got a, a kind of almost like a Napoleon complex style character thing going on because she is quite a bit shorter not just shorter than Saleta she's shorter than most of the other characters I think the only character that's like the same height basically as Miodine is Choo Choo, but Choo Choo like projects about six <laughs> inches above her head anyway, so she appears to be the biggest character in every scene because we're I, six inches is is low ball in that yeah. one, Sean. Her I, I looked I looked at that several times. Choo Choo's fucking buns are quite a bit bigger than her head. Each of yes. them individually is quite a bit bigger than her head. We'll talk about Choo Choo in a second because she's great. Yeah. I mean I think, you know, broadly there's sort of two types of this is very broad anime character designs. Ones that have normal human colored hair and ones that have crazy colored hair and I think Gund Gundam has done both at various times and this is one of the best examples I have ever seen of we're going to go for crazy colored hair uh, and everyone just everyone has cool colorful hair that says something about themselves 
but like it all feels so natural. Like you never think watching the show that, oh, this is a show with crazy hair colors. It's like it so fits into, I think, the entire palette that the show uses throughout all of the mobile suits and backgrounds and everything. Um, I think the way the hair not is not just colored but styled. You're talking about with Mirina. She, it's long. She has that kind of poof in it. Um, Choo Choo obviously has the craziest hair in Gundam history. Um, it's so cool. I love all the stuff they do with hair on this show. Yeah, and in particular, when you have that just amazing piece of animation in episode 11 when uh, Mionine, like, uh, is all trying to hold the door open or whatever yes. as Sled is trying to like shut it and then um Mionini gets s- slammed back against the wall and then she has this shot where like she like puts her hands into like claw shapes and just like uh, and she has this like grimace and the way her hair shapes all that like everything in that scene in the subsequent chase thus like her whole character design really I think comes to life when you know she gets to Um, run around like that and have these very extreme expressions on her face um and yeah it's just it's a great character it's great character design it's a great performance it's fucking incredible writing um i yeah i I love mio mio as she would hate to be called (laughs) yes i love the the brief attempt that suleta makes to give her a nickname because nickname is one of the things she has on her cute list of things she wants to do at school which is such an endearing character trait and so she calls her mio mio and immediately mirine like throws something at her oh it's fucking great uh also do you how uh i don't know how to word this question how intentional do you think it was that they spend a good deal of the season in uh, Mirine's little vegetable farm, primarily growing tomatoes, and you have many shots of Suleta holding tomatoes and tomatoes getting smashed, and then the final shot of the season is her smashing a dude like a tomato. Oh, that's completely intentional. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> no, like, there's 100%. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely intentional. Um, because there's a lot, like the tomato stuff is, is great. Like it's an incredible yeah. motif occurring throughout the show. You know, you have in episode one, it's the, mo- it's the thing that Sleda and Miodine bond over initially right. right because it's the thing that that Miodine has inherited from her mother is this tomato garden um in this and specifically it's this species or like this you know um whatever line of tomatoes um that her mom developed uh and it's Sleda had never eaten a tomato and it's just this gorgeous piece of animation where Sleda bites into this tomato and like the juices and all that stuff um and so that's the thing they bond over um, then later it comes up again in the uh, Shadik episode where at the end, right, Shadik has this like sort of one-sided crush on Miodine and he comes to realize by the end of that episode that he was too timid and he could, and he was never able to be the like strong foundation and bedrock in Miodine's life that Sleda was able to be because he was too scared and he tried to keep too much of a like respectful distance. and was too worried about like stepping into her life. That's like another great episode title is like, if I could just have taken one more step towards you is basically what that episode's titled. Um, but at the end of that episode, he's on that threshold to the tomato garden. And he can't step into it. Um, and it becomes clear that their relationship is done. Like it, like he has lost whatever chance he had of potentially having this deeper relationship with Miodine that he really wants to have. Um, and she has this unripe tomato in her hand, this like green unripe tomato that she says, it, you know, basically as Shattuck leaves, it's too late, you idiot. And she snips it off. And that's the end of the episode. Um, that is also just an incredible use of using the tomato imagery. Then you have all the stuff Sleta having to try to take care of the tomatoes and her scene that says the sign of trust um, that then gets portrayed when Miodene hires other people. So yeah, then when the season ends with an image of a human being splatted, but you don't get any viscera, 
all you get is thick red blood. It is 100%. This is the tomato that Sleta has smashed and has potentially ruined or like might be ruining her relationship with Miodine. Like absolutely that is completely intentional symbolism. Like this show is very heavy with how I think it uses a lot of that visual symbolism um, with like the blood splats and stuff like that in her in uh, Sleta stepping over the threshold, reusing the imagery of holding this hand out that Sleta sees um, her mother do, and then she does the same thing to Mio at the end of the of episode twelve. Like it, it uses that recurring imagery and symbolism and motifs all throughout the show. And I think it's one of like the very big strengths of the show is it's got such a strong command of its visual imagery that's able to use that so tactically to make these really strong points um at various points throughout the show absolutely yeah i was uh prompted by the way to do the tomato question and do a little tomato conversation here because i made a joke on twitter that i should just make the key art for this episode uh <laughs> suleta holding out the bloody hand which it might be you'll know if you're watching this and you'll see the art on screen on youtube uh and in response to that i am getting a uh, non-stop parade of tomato gifts and things my favorite one being bright noah's number one fan sent me just a gif uh zooming in on bob the tomato uh thinking and that made me laugh very hard so yes that is why this was prompted yes but it is it is it is also very true like that that is absolutely yes. a, uh, an intentional use of tomato based <laughs> symbolism um something yes. you don't see enough of honestly these days we should get more tomatoes used as a symbol in in fiction I hope the first shot of the next episode of, of, of the season two premiere is it is Suleta and Mirine in the cafeteria. Mirine just white, pale, just shocked at what has happened. And it is Suleta pouring ketchup onto a burger just to start the next episode. Yes. <laughs> that would that maybe that might be gilding the lily a little too much. But anyway. Uh, the other sort of big set of there's there's lots of characters to talk about, but the next obvious big set of characters we want to talk about is all the Earth characters in the yes. Earth House that takes in uh, Suleta and Murine. Uh and of course that means we have to talk about a character who is now at the very fucking minimum in contention for the best Gundam name title. Like she is on the Mount Rushmore of yes. great Gundam names, Chuatari Pan Lunch, also known as Choo Choo, Chuatari Pan Lunch, who also has. The craziest hair, like Yu-Gi-Oh worthy hair, just absolute hair insanity. I do not know how she gets it into the helmet. That really should be a subplot on this show is how she poofs the hair down into a helmet. Uh, let's talk about Choo Choo. Yeah. Have, have you seen the official piece of art they put out that shows how she puts the thing on? No, I haven't. Oh, my God. I I don't know if I have it on on hand. Um, you could probably if you Google around. I'm Googling. Um, I Googled yes. Choo Choo hair. So, oh, I think I see it. <laughs> yeah, it should also, if it's the right one, it should also have an image of Choo Choo holding a bat with nails in it. If that's the one you're looking at, um, it is Choo Choo is the best character in anything ever. Um, I, I don't think it's too extreme. <laughs> I found it <laughs> to uh, say that, you know, um, she is like, I've, I'm here to with the good book, Jonathan, and I'm here to talk to you about our Lord and Savior, Choo Terry Pan Lunch, because. Yeah, Choo Choo is just incredible. Um, in particular, you know, she's in the background of the first three episodes, and then you get episode four, which might be legitimately my favorite episode, which is the one where Choo Choo punches the ever-living shit out of that yes. one girl. And as soon as that <laughs> happened, I'm like, I, I am in love with this character. Like, I every scene that Choo Choo is in, it makes me happy. I get a big smile on my face. Um, she is, it's the best piece of character design. 
because she, you know, she has, you know, she's physically very short. One other thing I like about the character design of the show is they also have like showcased a lot of different body types. So it's like she's, you know, she's not like heavy set, but she's like bigger than the than a lot of the other girls. Um, and because she, she's also one of the pilots as well, so she has like kind of a muscular appearance. Um, she's she's a bit squat, and then she has the two giant pink puff balls as hair <laughs> that then uh, in the official art how she puts the. Um, the helmet on and and this official art was released like the day after episode four came out. So I do not know if they had this on hand or if they got one of the character artists to draw this image after they saw this question <laughs> trending on Twitter. Regardless, this is like the best example of how good this show is and like the people on it are at like engaging with the fans. They put out this art of her holding this like swim cap looking thing stretching it out over her two giant poofs and then just the next image she's just squashed them down and my favorite part of this image is like the important part of how does that work is just sort of alighted but she just (laughs) sort of squashes it down somehow with this sort of swim cap looking thing clasps it at the bottom and then there you go it's clasped down she has her bangs are kind of poking out from the front of this swim cap looking thing she the best part of Chi Chi is she is a fucking badass and she always has the super stern look in her face that is so counter to the like bubblegum ca- cotton candy appearance of the character which is just like the best fucking like gap moe thing ever is this like adorable bubblegum character that is going to beat the shit out of you and then in that official image for no reason whatsoever completely uncommented on in the corner after they've already <laughs> shown you how she puts it on they just have this image of her in the pilot suit with like the cap thing on and she's just got a bat with nails in it for no reason at all glaring <laughs> into the camera um, and they put that's an official Twitter. They put that on the official Twitter. This is like one of the artists for the show drew this fucking thing. And as soon as I thought that, it's like they get it. They know they know these characters so well. Like if that's the image you're going to put out, um, that that's not just fans projecting that attitude onto Choo Choo. No, Choo Choo is that much of a badass. She will beat the shit out of you. It is the like most realistic punch I have ever seen in an anime. Is her <laughs> clocking that girl in the face on the stairs, and the girl like wavers for a little bit, and then she like falls over. Clearly, this one punch to the face like fucking concussed her because that's what it looks like when someone gets a concussion. Um, it's just everything about her character is amazing. And then she's also the most foul mouthed person in the whole show. She's constantly like yelling, uh, you know, bloody murder about those soap spatian, like those shit spatian motherfuckers. Um, yeah, Chi Chi is, she's my favorite character in anything. She's great. She's awesome. Uh, they damn well better use that bat in the actual show at some point. I want to see that actual image drawn. My hope is that this is like fucking layout art they did for an actual scene somewhere in like season two where she's walking around the ship with a bat with nails in it and we find out she's had this the whole time. Oh my God, it's an amazing piece of art. Yeah, she's a wonderful character. Episode four is a standout for her and that whole character introduction and her beating the shit out of that girl. Uh, It's great. She's so angry at all the Spatians. Um, we also do get a nice little character development where we she she has this whole like I don't know if it's like literally her family or it's like the group of people she lives with back on Earth mm-hmm. who are all like engineers and like it almost seems like they've maybe like pooled their money to get her out into space to go to this academy and like she's much softer talking to them and like these are her actual people um, who she does not have to have a temper with and I'm very excited for whenever we inevitably get to Earth 
what that arc will be, where I assume we will go and meet all of Choo Choo's people, and that'll be a very fun uh, set of episodes. Yeah. Because Choo Choo's also ended up being, like, a more important character than I think I would have thought at first. Because, I mean, for the first couple of episodes, the idea of Saleta being part of, like, the Earth dorm had never even, like, occurred to me. Because she's not from Earth. Um, and so that, like, twist that, oh, like, these Earth characters that we've seen in the background for the first few episodes, they're not just, like, going to be random supporting characters. They're, like, you know, going to be part of the main recurring cast of the show. Um, and that Choo Choo is the only pilot other than now Saleta in the Earth Dorm. So it, like, and you see that particularly becomes really important in the Shadok fight. Um, and so that puts her in this like position of like a much higher level of importance in the overall show than I think I suspected when I first saw the character design or saw the first couple of episodes. I thought, oh, she's this cool character that will pop up a couple of times, but isn't going to be that important. But she's fairly central and pretty major um, and, and like is set up to be a really important character as the show goes on as well um one other thing while i'm thinking about the character design um you have your main choo-choo appearance that we see with like either you know her pilot suit and then she's also got like the big pink hoodie that's like too big on her and stuff you also do get um some stuff in the earth dorm where you see all the the girls in like their sort of lounge wear and choo-choo's is so good because she has these like uh, overalls on and then she's collected her two poofs into one giant poof and has like a big sleeping cap pulled over this one giant poof that's like five times the size of her own head um, and it's like so good and just it, it's, it is one of my favorite parts of the show is how sharp the character design is and like all the outfits the characters have and stuff like that because it's true of all of the Earth Dorm characters they all look so unique they all look so different. They're all different, like, shapes and sizes and skin colors and stuff and hairstyles. Um, there's just such a range of characters represented that all stand out and have, like, a lot of personality to them. Um, and it's so impressive to me because it's a big cast of characters. And, you know, Choo Choo is, to me, like, the best character design. She's my favorite. But all of them have a really striking, interesting character design in a way that you look at other shows and, you know, like, there's a few of the, the like, supporting cast of Iron-Blooded Orphans that have a fairly memorable character design. But most of, like, the random people in Tekadon just look like anime characters. You know, it's like, they look fine, but it doesn't, they don't have, like, a really striking appearance. And that's how most anime is. It's like, you have your main five or six characters, maybe, that have really, like, really great character designs that they put a lot of effort into. And then everyone outside that sphere is a bit more generic. Suisei no Majo or Witcher Mercury has no generic looking characters. Even like random girl that exists to be punched in the face by Choo Choo, that character also looks cool and interesting. It has a very distinct memorable design. And you remember it because you never see her again because presumably she has not fucking woken up since she got punched in the face by Choo Choo. <laughs> yes. Uh, maybe at some point there will be the Choo Choo goes to prison arc and uh, just becomes leader of the prison because, yeah. you know, she would she would do that, obviously. I'd love to watch uh, the episode where Chi-Chi shanks someone in prison. Please. <laughs> that, is, that is the quote from this episode, Sean. I would love to watch an episode where Chi-Chi shanks someone in prison. Uh, but it's very true. She's great. Um, another favorite Chi-Chi line, I just have to say, is when they do accept uh, Suleta into their house, she has this just incredibly petty, hilarious line where she's like, all right, we're both first years, but I was here first, so you have to call me Senpai. Yes. <laughs> that whole line is great. Then you have their actual Senpai, Nika Nanaura, 
great name. This show definitely yes. inherits the Tomino legacy of great fucking names. Um, and Nika is a really interesting character uh, because she's sort of your like warm, nice uh, house mother almost kind of character there who kind of like takes care of everyone in the house um, and is the cool senpai character. But then also in the later episodes, you realize she is working with Shadik on uh, something and there is they have something over her, but she clearly does not feel good about it. She's a double agent, but she doesn't want to be. Yeah, she she's she's the go between between Shadik and this like terrorist cell on Earth that attacks in the last couple of episodes. Although she is she does not know that that attack is going to happen because Shadik takes that call personally. Um, and she's left to wait outside, so she does not know um, that shit's going to go down. Uh, which is a pretty dick move by Shadik because it almost gets her killed, and she you, you <laughs> yes. know and that's one of the the parts of the cliffhanger for episode twelve is that Nika is exposed to Martin the leader of the earth dorm um who saw her sending that signal or whatever um but yes. yeah nika's yeah nika's a great character um she there there's it's that kind of character where you know that there's a lot more under that very gentle surface um and we we haven't like seen that much of it um but you know that like there's a lot more going on with her yeah this is an interesting character she was voiced by yume miyamoto for the first nine episodes mm-hmm. Um, and Miyamoto is uh, sick. We don't know, you know, exactly what, but her agency put out a statement. Uh, is focusing on getting well. And Haruka Shiraishi has taken over the part since episode ten. Unclear if that'll be permanent for the rest of this show. I guess we'll see. Uh, they're both good performances. It's felt relatively seamless to me as a vocal replacement goes. Yeah, and actually, I think the thing that was interesting is that there's a couple of scenes in episode nine, which is the last one that Miyamoto voiced on, where her voice sounds really different, not in a way that it feels like they that they had secretly recast the role already, but in a way that felt like, oh, probably, whether it's COVID yeah. or whatever she illness she has, it clearly has made it too difficult for her to play the character, so... It, it sucks. Like, I hate to see that happen because it always feels really bad because, you know, like, voice actors have to work so hard to get the roles that they get. Um, but it's, you know, if you can't do it, then you got to recast it. Yeah. So, anyway, hope she gets better. Um, but still love the character either way. Also has cool hair. She's a blue-haired girl. Um, yeah. And then you have all the other fun characters in the dorm. I do like Martin and the other characters. That's where you've got some of your, like... Basically, you're only like normal dudes in the show who are yes. not scheming and doing horrible things. It's just the boys uh, taking commands from the girls at Earth House. And I like all of those guys. They're fun. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. With Martin is voiced by uh, Inoki Jr., who's the main yes. character also in Jujutsu Kaisen, which is funny to me. <laughs> Yeah, like, it's, it is a kind of small part for him. Yeah. He's fairly big at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is... Uh, you know, apparently though, uh, one of his uh, key influences was Guren Lagan. I just learned for the first time. That's fun. Well, there you anyway, go. all right. So, uh, what else? Um, should we talk about the three main boys though we have at the University of Elon, Shadik, and Guel? Yes, yeah. So we have our our three kind of rival boys that we work through with our our duels. Um, you know, we can start with Guel. Guel's obviously, he feels like he's the most involved because he's the one you start out with. And then he's got the most delightful subplot going throughout the whole show. <laughs> um, that was like another, he's, I think in particular, the, the Japanese fan base really likes Guel. Um, uh, he, I know that he's like one of the most popular characters on like, uh, character popularity polls. Um, I think both because he's legitimately a good character. And also he is a very fun meme character, particularly in that middle stretch of the show, because, you know, he starts off with your classic bully piece of shit 
character that needs to get his ass slapped and then beaten by uh, Sleda. Uh, and that happens in episode one. And then they have that duel again in episode three where Guel's like, you know, his dad basically like puts an AI or whatever into the mobile suit. And so Guel is not able to really fight until the very end. And Sleda recognizes, you know, his strength. And that is then when you get your great um episode three ender where it's the reverse of the episode one thing where he, he now is proposing to Saleta um and you get one of the many episode endings where Saleta just ends the episode with like a huh uh sound yes. effect that you know Yusnesa kind of had to do like find a thousand ways to make that noise for each one to be more severe as it goes throughout the season um and then from that point you get so much great stuff with this character where I think you see very quickly, oh, there's this whole other side to him as a person that's like, yeah, he is this like arrogant bastard who like thinks like the world should be kind of given to him on a platter from a certain perspective because he is the son of one of the CEOs that runs the company or then runs a school and all that kind of stuff. But also like he clearly like really like believes in what he's doing. He cares about like the duels and being honorable about the duels. He obeys the like, whole thing where he comes in and apologizes to Miodine with this very formal apology and he's very respectful to the teacher in that scene who's like are you done well and he says I'm sorry sensei or you know uh, you can go about with your lesson I'm going to go and all this stuff um and you see that okay like there's this other part to him like he isn't just this sort of like generic bully character um there is something much more kind of noble that he also has that his dad maybe doesn't want Guel to have, right? Like his dad just wants Guel to be the guy you, to do whatever the dad says and inherit the company and all this other shit. Um, and Sleta starts to show him another path. And that's what leads to Guel having uh, his camping adventures for the middle of section of the show, which is <laughs> yes. one of the best things. Every time they would cut to him uh, at his tent and he's has like a fucking iPad or some shit and he's watching the duels and everything. And then eventually he, he uh, leaves the school um, and he becomes Bob, uh, and he ends the, the show as Bob, and then eventually he, he murders his own father. And it's like, what a fucking journey. You go from asshole bully to like, oh, maybe there's like more to this guy. It's like, oh, he's now he's he's camping. Okay, now he's changed his name to Bob, and then now he's committed patricide. It's like a really, it's it's a big journey you go with him on these 12 episodes. It's a, it is amazing when you think about like how much plot this show is moving through to begin with and then it does wind up having time for this entire subplot with Guel in yes. the background, which is just this eternal humiliation of this character. Like he just loses and loses and loses and loses and keeps falling and falling and falling until you think he can't fall anymore and maybe this is going to be a little bit of a redemption arc for him in this final episode. And instead, what it is, is that he finally wins a fight and it's killing his own dad in space. Like, this almost feels like if this were a different AU Gundam show and we didn't already have a Char clone, Guel would come back in season two with a mask and be our Char mm -hmm. clone, right? Yeah. Like, terrible things have happened to him. There's another version where you could see him very much falling in the vein of, like, Jared Mesa in Zeta Gundam. And I don't think he's going to be any of those things. I'm really curious what he will be when we come back. Because clearly... They've devoted this much time to him. They have a plan. He will be a major figure in the yeah. future of this show. But like, what like side of morality will he fall on? What specifically specific role will he play? Because I those last couple episodes really threw a loop into any kind of 
it could still be a a redemption sort of arc in a sense, but boy, that's a that is a Tomino style trauma that has been thrown his uh-huh. way in episode twelve, like literally ripped out of the various Tomino shows. That's something that would happen in Victory Gundam, you know. Uh, he's gonna yeah. come back to the ship with his dad's head in a helmet and go, "This was my dad," you know. It's uh, it's intense. It's definitely the most Gundam moment in the show is him going like, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I haven't I haven't moved towards Sled and Mercury yet. Like, I think that like that line specifically feels like it's written in a Tomino style. Um, I yes. think like his, that's all that scene. And then, yes, and then he reverses the attack or whatever and then kills his own dad, realizes, hears it over the radio. That's where, you know, his dad gets like the one like minor redeeming thing you thing you hear about him is he's like i searched for you son is like it's like okay well at least you know we know he cares enough about his son at least as a tool to not be distraught when guel just like disappeared um but you know guel's dad is definitely the most like objectively he's the worst character in the show like that's one of the reasons why like i think you get to kill him at this if this is going to be ultimately a 50 something episode show this is a pretty early stage but it's like yeah that guy can go because he's like man his dad was a piece of shit uh but you also understand how much guel really like cared about his dad and wanted to live up to his father's expectations um and the darkness of him you know buying into Saleta's whole if you retreat you get one if you advance you get two thing and that leading to him you know he you know he gets two things he advances towards Saleta and he murders his own father like he got two things from that um and showing that like this <laughs> this like thing that he has inherited that like Saleta believes in is can be a curse um because because it is right this is one thing um I meant to mention earlier on the Lady Prospera thing but that whole line that Sleta has that she has imparted onto Guel that he has kind of like inherited, the thing that it like makes me think of is like chess. Like it, it, it feels like it's like a tactics thing. What you want, you don't want to retreat with your pawn. You want to push forward because it's like, yeah, you might lose this pawn, but you can take your enemy's piece and you move your position forward. You can, you force their next move. So you gain two. Whereas if you don't, you might retain this piece so you gain one, but you haven't moved your position for it. Like, it feels like a thing I would think of if I'm playing fucking Fire Emblem or something. You move forward, you gain two, you retreat, you get one. Like, you want to be typically, you want to be aggressive in a tactical scenario because you can gain more by pushing the attack. And that's, and like, Sleta hasn't taken it that way, but that to me is what that thing means. That's like what her mom is doing is turning her into a chess piece. It's like you're a pawn, like you're the, you need to move forward for you to perform the function in my overall game that I'm playing. Um, and that, you know, there might be ways in which that philosophy can be good for you, but also like you need to, sometimes you need to back off. Like sometimes you need to retreat. If the only thing in life, if the only thing you do is push forward, like you're not only going to gain things, you're going to lose things too. And that's, you know, that's what you see with Guel and that kind of sets up also then this kind of darker version you see with it with Sleta as well, where she has bought into that phrase so much that she doesn't see the price that she's paying by killing that guy in the way she does. Um, and, and yeah, Guel is like very useful as a character to kind of build up that arc alongside Sleta. I was playing Fire Emblem this morning and there was a part I was having all this trouble at because I was only trying to push forward and it wasn't until I retreated and regrouped that I won the match. So it's not there even necessarily go. good tactics. 
There you yes. go. No, but you're right. It is It is specifically... Like, I think I saw someone made a prediction that it's almost like that phrase is like in the Manchurian Candidate or something. It's like the phrase that, like, mm-hmm. activates Suleta. I don't think it's literally that, obviously, because she says it in plenty of moments where she doesn't then go off the grid and kill people. But it is very clearly... I do not think Lady Prospera gave her that piece of advice with the warmth that Suleta gives it to other people. Let's yes. just say that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm, so, more with Guel in the future. Uh, Ellen, Ellen Karras, oh. voiced by Hanai Natsuki. Really, we're talking about several characters here, yes. which is part of why I think you have Hanai Natsuki here, because you need someone with the craziest possible range, uh, and also will probably be on this show throughout its run in different forms, because the actual Elon, we don't know that well. We've only seen a little mm-hmm. bit of including him being a shitty, manipulative bastard in the Shall We Gundam episode. Um, but in the first six episodes, we have Nice Boy Clone, which is like the purest version of Hanai Natsuki. He sounds a lot like Tanjiro. He's a good kid uh, who has a horrible fate and yeah. dies. And in, in the, the first hint that this is, oh yeah, this is a Gundam show. Yes, yeah, you have your main Ellen, um, you know, which, yeah, he, he meets his tragic fate. You learn that he's that kind of cyber new type archetype character in your Gundam show. Um, and yeah, and then he gets fucking melted uh, while while Sleta is waiting for him to go on that date or whatever. Uh, it's just such a brutal ending to an episode. Um, and then you get original Ellen, and then you have the second clone Ellen, who I fucking love. We've only seen him in like two scenes because he's in the scene where he interacts with Sleda, and then they show him briefly um, in episode 12 um, where he comments on something. Um, I think he's like, oh, he says something about like, oh, Gundam's from Earth. Like he's seeing some of the footage of what's going on in this battle. It's like, oh, we don't want to fuck with that shit, uh, basically. Uh, but but the second clone Ellen I love because he's got a fucking cape like they adjusted his character design a little bit so he's got this much <laughs> more kind of princely theatrical thing and then his scene with Sleta where he tries to seduce her is so funny where like you know she's just having none of it um, and, he, and he just basically ends up pushing her away because he's so aggressive and he has this line where he says like Oh Ah, de what? And like the way that he's like, oh, one more push, and like, oh, she's going to give in that girl. And like the way he leans into this, <laughs> ah, de what? Is like, it's a very good Hanai Natsuki touch. It's like he's, he's just the biggest fucking scumbag who's like so confident in his ability to like, you know, manipulate Sleda. And he's completely misread that reaction because Sleda's just like, what the fuck was wrong with him? Like, what has happened to Ella? Like, you know, she couldn't, she didn't realize for original Ellen that he was different than the one that she had met. Like the, the, in terms of original, in terms of the actual human who is Ellen Saris, she never realized that that was a different person. This guy, she's like, what the fuck? Like, is he even the same person basically? Um, And I, I thought that scene was great. It is. And I do love that the two characters Hanai Natsuki has voiced in Gundam uh-huh. was Biscuit last time around yep. and Ellen here. So basically the first character who breaks your heart in both shows. Yes. Uh, but then also is clearly going to be a villain in this show as well. Um, and yeah, it's some great stuff. Episode six, which is where you have the entire the duel with Ellen. And then, you know, Ellen had, had gotten to this point where the clone Ellen had become very 
cold towards Suleta because he's basically because he's jealous of her. Like, how does this person have this like relationship with this mobile suit and have this outlook on life and all the things I don't have? And then after the duel sort of softens, um, but also because he has lost is going to go get melted. And just the entire final stretch of that episode of her singing happy birthday while waiting on the bench and him getting melted it is uh it is the gundam touch very much it's a phenomenal episode of television yeah it's a phenomenal episode of television and it's also if you know if anyone starts to sing happy birthday to you in the universe of which mercury you gotta shut them the fuck up it's like stop yeah no no don't sing no it's not my birthday stop because it's a fucking death spell in this world um, is we've we've heard happy birthday sung twice and both times someone died. I'm hundred percent sure it will yeah. And it is not going to be the last time. I, I yeah. think we can say that confidently. So there you go. And then finally we have Shadik Zanelli, another great name, uh, who very clearly to me is a piece of shit from the moment you meet him. He's just handsome and put together enough that not everyone else has realized it. And over the course of the season we realize, oh yeah, that dude's a bastard. Yeah, yeah, and he definitely feels like he's the one who is set up to be a like ongoing antagonist character yes. into the future more directly. Like Ellen and like that whole the pale technologies, that side of it feels like this kind of third party that's probably going to like fuck around. For me, Gwell is like you know I think he's like this sort of like wandering samurai character or something. It feels like he's what he's going to turn into, or he's going to like his allegiances might sort of float around, but ultimately he'll be a sympathetic or somewhat hero character. Whereas like Shadik feels like he's going deeper into the darkness, not really like thinking that he knows everything about the world is like, so what like the impression you get. Um, but that probably there's a lot about the dynamics of what's going on here that he doesn't really understand. Um, and he's got, and we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but he's got a very interesting relationship with Miodine where, you know, he clearly like he actually cares about her. You know, because Shadik's whole thing is that he is adopted into the Zanelli family. So he was an orphan or something um, and was adopted into this family. And so he is an outsider in the way that, like, Miodine is an outsider, not because she's, you know, she's obviously not an outsider. This is that her father runs the whole fucking conglomerate. But, like, nobody really thinks about her or cares about her. She's just, like, a tool or a trophy to be given around. Um, And so Shadik sees some sort of, like simpatico there with her but doesn't really understand how to push that relationship forward and so he like ruins it um then you have that great episode nine title if i could take one more step toward you ipo kimi fumi dase tanada like if i could have just taken one more step um like what could have been different and then the relationship gets cut off um it's it's really and then and then he just goes like full villain right because then right after that he's plotting to like assassinate her fucking father um so he's clearly pretty quickly given up on whatever that relationship could have been to him. Yes. And, you know, I, I always suspected from the very beginning that this dude had more going on there that would be bad. But I think uh, the jump from what is in that arc, as you're talking about, where he, it's that if I could take one more step towards you, all of that stuff, to what you get in the finale, where he is planning an assassination and dealing with fucking space terrorists and all this stuff. That's that's quite the leap. That is more than I was expecting, and I think you're right. He will clearly be one of the major villains who will probably die at or near the finale of this show in a battle with Suleta. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that's yeah. that's definitely what it feels like. I'm because I'm also very interested to see like more with his dad because that is the one that like 
we haven't seen much of, you know, I guess we haven't seen Ellen's dad, but we've seen a lot of like the, the three women or whatever that run the pale corporation that like are that kind of CEO role. And we saw a lot of, uh, Guel's dad, including his death. Uh, but like, uh, Shaddock's dad, who's the guy who like really just hates the Gundams. We haven't seen that much of that dude deal. And I'm really curious to see more about that dynamic. Cause Shaddock is obviously like betraying his father and completely going behind his back in pursuing this, whole thing and trying to get the Gundams like he's trying to like he wants to get the aerial he wants to own the Gundam corporation and all that and he's also working with an earth terrorist cell that has two Gundams and two quote-unquote witches piloting those Gundams so it's like he is clearly like really deep into this shit but I think you get the sense that he doesn't actually know the reality of what he's he's messing with yeah I think that's probably correct what other characters do you want to talk about uh from this first season um, we, missed? Uh, we have the two the two witches from Earth are really good. I mean, we only have them in like two episodes, basically, but those characters make a big impression, I think. Um, one of them is voiced by Yuki Aoi, who we've seen in a lot of stuff. Um, and yes. so and she's the one that we haven't seen actually that much of because um, uh, so we've mostly seen the other one. I can't remember the name of that character, but the one that gets in the fight with Sleta. Uh, but it is fun to get your like there is a whole there is like a world of child soldiers out there that their lives are not dueling at your fancy school and going on dates or all that shit like these are the girls who grew up in the Gundam shows that we know right it's one of the things I like about Witch from Mercury is I think it's easy to imagine other Gundam shows like a Zeta Gundam or Gundam Wing or whatever where or like Double Gundam and all that kind of stuff where you get this you get the, the show set in that world where your point of view for most of it is sheltered and removed from the larger conflict that's happening. But that larger conflict is out there um, because those people existed, right? There are people training in pilot academies in the Universal Century and all that kind of stuff or during the, the events of Double Gundam that didn't touch this big, crazy conflict and all that that's actually happening out there. Um, and they were just sort of going through their kind of privileged lives. Um, and it's fun to get this and in this show and actually see that kind of be explored and see that shell start to crack. And those two girls are like the main things you get that kind of crack it. That's like, oh, these these are like what if Sleta did not have all the things that she has, it has in Miodine and all these other characters that, you know, even with all the problems they have, they exist at this like top level of society. Sleta's mother is the CEO of the company or whatever that mines runs the uh, mines and mercury and all of that. So she lives a very privileged existence, even if obviously there's all this weird shit that she might be a clone or everything, but it's still not the same as being a war orphan that is experimented on so that you can pilot a Gundam that is killing you as you use it. That is like a dark fucking existence that is so out far outside the scope of the main characters we know. Yeah, I'm very curious about all of that. I like, so we have, yeah, Noria and Sophie are the two characters yes. you were talking about who are, are witches from Earth, and I suspect we'll see a lot more of them. It was, when we met those characters, I'm like, okay, either these are going to be major characters for the rest of the show, or Sulet is going to kill both of them in a very dark moment. She does not wind up killing either of them yet. Uh, she kills a different person in a very dark moment. Yes. So we'll see, but I am very curious about them. Um I think that covers all the major figures from, from mm -hmm. this first season. There's a, there's a lot of people here. What else do you want to talk about with The Witch from Mercury? Um, we wound up covering most of the major plot points. 
Uh, I think it's probably worth talking about the mobile suit action. We talked a little bit earlier about how they they do not use 3D for the the mobile suits, yeah. as you said. Um, but the action sequences are are very good. This is not a particularly action heavy Gundam so far because it is sort of constrained mostly to those duels. Not every episode has one of those. The duels tend to be pretty quick sequences. I think the longest one is probably the group duel with Shadik in mm-hmm. episode nine. Um, but they're very impressively done. The sense of fluidity and motion and kineticism is off the charts. I think the choreography is very good. It's very character, you know, focused in how they do these scenes. Um, and I think even though there is not sort of life and death stakes through a lot of these fights, they still manage to to have a lot of, you know, good sort of like tension and one-upsmanship and all of that in these scenes. Yeah, it's really good. Like, the animation is phenomenal, you know. Um, and I think it makes such good use of, like, the gun bits and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Like, for particularly for Ariel, that's really creative. And I think for me, in terms of action, I do think the highlight is that team fight with Shadok. Um, I think that whole sequence is so well choreographed um, in the moment where they use the antidote on Saleta and then she is able to push further with Ariel to a higher permit score or whatever that, like, negates that. You have that great, very suggestive cut to Lady Prospero watching the footage and a tear rolls down her cheek because this is, of course, the antidote was the thing that got her husband killed, right? And is like the main reason why the Bandit Institute couldn't fight back um, in the incident 21 years ago. Um, And so seeing Ariel be able to overcome that so effortlessly, obviously, like it's, it's a pretty great little moment that gives you this little sense of like, that human person that is still there somewhere in Lady Prospera behind that mask. Um, but then, of course, I do love that the climax of that fight ultimately is Choo Choo winning, right? Because uh, Sled is able to fight off all the different, like, girls who have their whole crazy intros of where they're, like, it's this whole, yes. like, idol group of female pilots and stuff, which is a great little concept. Um, and, you know, Sled dispatches them pretty effortlessly to, to the point of one of the girls, like, just shouting at her that she's a monster, um, and then it comes down to her and Shadik. Shadik is like going in for the kill to take out the antenna or whatever. And then Chuchu makes that shot, long distance shot, because they eliminated most of the Earth suits, but didn't actually disable them. So they're able to like all prop together and get one working gun so Chuchu can make one last shot. And Miodine knew that Shadik would try to go and do like finish it himself because he can't trust anybody else. And so that's how Miodine knew that at the end that would be the time that they could take him out, even though they were, like, horribly outgunned. I just think that, like, that whole concept and the story told through that fight, through the action, is really phenomenal. Just to me, like, the main showcase of uh, for Mobile Suit action in this show. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that one is is uh, extremely well done. The You also just get uh, something that I always love, like, you know, with the double O in the season two premiere when it's missing its arm and has the cape. Anytime you get the main mobile suit all fucked up, and that's mm-hmm. what happens to Ariel in that fight where she's eventually, is she fighting with no arms by the end of it or just one missing? I don't I th- remember. It's definitely at least yeah. one missing. At least one missing, but the aerial gets all fucked up, and there's some very good fighting there. It's a fight that Suleta like should have absolutely no business winning because she's one mobile suit against seven like top of the line, uh-huh. and they have like they have like one great mobile suit in the area aerial. They have Choo Choo's, which is probably pretty good, and then they have a bunch of basically just like randos that they got from uh-huh. another house, and they put all those together and uh, they win the day anyway because Suleta is kind of a monster <laughs> behind this thing, and Choo Choo and Miorine are smart. Uh, and it is a very, very good scene. But all the duels are really well done. You know, you have, like, 
Elon versus um, Guel in episode five is just mm-hmm. a brutal fight where he just basically humiliates Guel, and it's just a cruel battle. Um, I think Guel is an interesting person to watch fight in the early episodes because he's someone you do kind of feel bad for him, especially on a second viewing, because you realize, oh, he is actually really good at yeah. this. He's just horrifically unlucky in who he winds up going up against in these in this series of episodes. Yeah, it is that thing that like. I think the implication is that if in episode three, if his dad hadn't like completely fucked around and put in this AI and all the shit that Gwell maybe could have won that fight because he is really fucking good. Um, it's just that like everyone is fucking around with him. Um, and he's in these like really poorly matched encounters, you know, like he has the, in the fight with Ellen, it's like they're on the moon with the dust or whatever that gets into the joints of his mobile suit. And Ellen has like the gun bits and it's a thing that he's never seen before and never fought this type of mobile suit. So it's like, yeah, it's when he has like a straightforward fight with his own father, he wins it pretty handily. Um, so I think like you, it is that Guel is supposed to be really good. It's just that he keeps on getting fucked around in these like ridiculous scenarios. It occurred to me watching the series a second time that in episode one, if he wasn't such a bullying piece of shit, I might actually feel bad for him because, uh-huh. to be fair, he is fighting an illegal mobile suit. Like, I know we uh-huh. all, Suleta is adorable and everything. She is using, not to her knowledge, but she is using an illegal mobile suit, and that is technically unfair to poor Guel, who is who is doing a perfectly fine job fighting. He just did not anticipate fighting a Gundam. Yes, that is a very good point that it is true that Sleta completely is cheating her ass off in these duels. It is true. <laughs> but again, Gwell is a, is a bullying piece of shit in that episode, so he had what's coming to him. Yeah. But if he had been nice and they had dueled under different circumstances, you might feel bad. And in fact, in all three of his fights, he loses to Gundams. We have not seen him fight a just normal mobile suit because it's the fair act he loses to in episode five. Yes. Which Ellen like taunts him saying like, this is a Gundam idiot. Um, it's, it's brutal. Poor guy. But yeah, you start, you feel bad for him as the series goes along. Cause you know, he did squash some tomatoes and that wasn't nice, but the line from that to killing your own dad in space, Guel didn't deserve that. You know, it's, it's yeah. more than he had coming to him. He deserved the slap on the ass and maybe losing the title of holder, but it goes a lot further than that. Yeah, pour one out for Bob. <laughs> out for Bob. I am just so... There's so many things I'm excited for in, in upcoming seasons. So we've lavished praise on the animation. We've talked a bit about the music. And again, I would just say, like, this is... Uh, who's the composer on this? It's Takashi Om- Omama. And yes. it is a great score, top to bottom. It's, I think, it, you know, you have a lot of, you know, your, your tracks, like in any anime, that are reused in places. You also just have a lot of good, unique music in certain scenes, like the instrumental version of Shufuku you talked about when you have our inspirational murder speech by yes. Lady Prospera. There's just a lot of very good music in this thing. Um, and I am very excited for whenever, maybe it'll probably be after this next season airs when we get a proper full soundtrack, because it's going to be fun to listen to. Yeah, it's a it's a great great soundtrack, and of course we also need to talk about the the OP and ED, right? Yes. So Shikufuku, which is by one of my favorite Japanese bands, uh, Yoasabi, um, such a great band. If people have not listened to some more of their music, um, phenomenal. Uh, particularly my favorite song of theirs, and I believe in my like Spotify breakdown end of year thing or whatever said was my most listened to song of 2022 was <laughs> the song Monster or Kaibutsu. By Yoasabi, which was uh, one of the openings to Beastars, I think. But regardless of the anime it was attached to, Monster is a fucking killer song. 
Um, but yeah, Shikufuku, great opening. Um, like one I was like very happy every, that was like one of the fun things about watching it every week was like, you know, having that like week break between seeing the OPs meant that like, I was very excited to like sit down and listen to and watch the full 90 second OP every single time, not looking at my phone or whatever. Um, because I was like ready and fresh for it. But yeah, Yoyasubi is a great band. I think that is like a killer song. And then also the ending theme, which is, uh, what, Kimiyo Takaku Are? Um, Kedaku Are um, by Shiyui um, that is also not not as good as Shikufuku. Um, you can't, it's hard to beat Yoasubi, but also a very good ending theme. Yeah, I like both songs, uh, particularly the opening. Neither would go in like my Gundam Top 40, if people are wondering. Yeah, probably It wouldn't not. break that high, but they are very good. At, to, to be clear, that's a very competitive Top yes. 40. At this point, we've got like over 200 songs on that playlist. Uh, in particular, though, I think the ending animation I really love. Mm-hmm. It's all these like kind of like child watercolor drawings of Suleta and uh, goes very overt with the Suleta Miorine are in love imagery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, but it's very cute. And I think that ending animation is great. Yeah. Yeah. It, yes. It, that I'm with you that I, I really love that animation. I also, one thing I do like um, about the opening theme as well is they do change it up a little bit as the season goes on. Um, they like, they add in uh, the witches from earth in the last couple of episodes and stuff like that. And I thought that was cool. Like little details like that, that they sort of adjusted the opening slightly as the story went on. I may not have noticed that. I'll have to go back and look at that. That's cool. Um, but yeah, the opening, I just, the, the whole like driving guitar of that mm. song is just killer. And the way it starts. And then I think the way it ends with, I particularly love the, the, how the title comes up in the, yes. in the, in the opening where you have Siletta and, um, and Mirine kind of both looking like they're asleep, kind of like circling each other. And then the title kind of comes out of that and glows. I think the entire title treatment of Witch from Mercury is like one of my favorite Gundam title treatments. It's very simple. It's not, I don't think they even necessarily like invented a font for it or anything. It's just like, I think the way the kanji look, the way you have the English title in like very plain text mm-hmm. right beneath it, there's just something about it that like whenever, because the eye catch in this show is a very simple just throw to title, and it always strikes me that it's a very good title treatment. Yeah, I agree. I, I remember being impressed by the title treatment when that was like the only thing we saw, right? Like yes. all it was was a logo. <laughs> you looked at it as like, well, there's not, you know, a lot you can take away from it, but goddamn, this is like a really nice designed logo. And yeah, like the font is really good. Um, the, the kanji are really well like depicted and how spatially they're laid out on the image. It's yeah, it's a good title. Well, cause I mean, those are some, uh, they're all very common kanji yes. that you'll know if you know even a few. And it's just, there's something about the way they're like drawn with these like very kind of flowing lines that kind of feels magical to me or something. Like there is this like, that's what it, it like projects that idea of you know the the majo the or the maho the, the the actual like witch idea yes there's something about that i really like so anyway it's very cool uh i also just the word suisei is always great it's basically water star it's cool mm-hmm. yeah so all of it looks very nice uh yeah that's there's a lot here sean here's a little fun game i want to play before we break for today i want to okay. go through a list of major characters Let's predict who survives this series and who dies. Oh, okay. I think this is hard. We don't even know how long the series is going to be, technically speaking. But like, I, okay. well, but we can say who's going to be dead at the end of it. Okay. Uh, Suleta and Mirine, I think, will live. I don't yes. think this is an Iron Blooded Orphans, but 
Also, I don't think that's completely off the table from what we've seen so far. But no, I don't think this is an iron-blooded orphan. Uh, of the two of them, I think I think it's possible that Sleta could die at the end of if like one of them yes. were to be killed. I don't think either of them are going to be killed. No, but but there is also a chance that Sleta is a clone, which also makes her more likely yes. to be killed. I think. I do. Yes, indeed. Uh, Guel. He's dead. He will die at the end. Yeah, I think he's almost... I feel bad, Bob. It's like, you're a good kid. Uh, but he's... Yeah, I think his number... I don't know. I think it'll be a while. I, you know, but I think he's going to die. I think he survives to the last core whenever that is. But I do think he dies. Uh, Elon has a lot of different forms. I think all of them will be dead at the end. I, I think there will be one Ellen that will survive. I think that's... You know, I think that's how... I, it, either it will be the original which I think would be interesting in and of itself, or there might be like an Ellen yet seen that will be an Ellen that survives the fray. Yeah. Shadik is obviously going to die, but I think yes. he survives close to the end. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, he's... Uh, yeah, I think he's going to be a deep in. He gets taken out. Yeah. Uh, Nika, Nanaura. <sighs> she's probably going to die, I, isn't she? She's going to die. I think oh, she's no. going to die. There's going to be there's going to be an arc no. where we learn where we learn about her betrayal and she feels bad and in trying to make up for it she sacrifices herself for the group. That that might be like a core three kind of thing that we get. But I yeah she's dead. Yeah, I, she's almost certainly dead. But oh god, I don't want to think about it. <laughs> choo choo. No. No. <laughs> Just no. It's not going to happen. No. Like it's. it's I, like it'll be like a mobile suit fight and then like her mobile suit will get disabled and it seems like she's about to die and then she kicks the fucking hatch off jumps out and just punches the other mobile suit and it just <laughs> explodes like in one punch man um that's what's gonna happen <laughs> or maybe that's where we finally get the bat she like we see she's got a slot in her cockpit she like takes the bat kicks the door open and goes out with the bat oh my god yeah and it's like the thing you sometimes get in gundam fights where like she like finds the hatch on the other mobile yes. seat and like pulls the lever to pull the cockpit <laughs> out and then she just gets in there and fucking beats the other pilot to death with a fucking spiked bat yeah yes that's yeah. what's gonna happen <laughs> all right uh Lauda Neal, who is the other boy at Jeturk House, who is constantly having to deliver the bad oh. news to uh, Guel. Yeah, the the younger brother who mysteriously has a different last name, which was a detail yes. I noticed on second watch. Um, I think there's a decent chance that he survives. Like, I think I think he'll be like I think he's going to be a villainous character overall. Um, but I think I think he's going to survive because Guel is going to die. That's that's my guess. Yeah. Okay. I my prediction is he will die. But I can see your your side of it too, uh, Martin Upmont. It's hard to call. I think there's a good chance yeah. that he gets killed. I think there's a good chance that he survives. Like I think there's a good chance that he ends up getting kind of shuffled out of the show while he is still alive. Like I think that's, that's like true. Where where like everything becomes too much for him to handle, and eventually the show is going to go pretty far away. I think from the school setting. I think there's a chance that if Martin lives the show, it'll be because he doesn't keep going with them at a certain point. What about Nuno Cargan, who is the guy who's got the beanie on all the time while also wearing a hoodie under his uniform? He's like more of the bad yeah. boy of the group. I feel like maybe he becomes a mobile suit pilot and eats it at some point. I think he, he might die. Yeah, I, yeah. I, would, I wouldn't be surprised. Ojalo Gable, uh, who is the, the black boy in the group? You know, like, I think there's, like, a chance where, like, there will be an episode where a lot of the, like, it would be Earth. a scene where, like, three or four of the Earth kids get killed in one go. Um, yeah. Like, I think if if you do something like that, he would die in that scene. That's true. 
uh, Lalique, who is the girl who like helps them out and is is constantly under oh, pressure God. from Irene. She lives, I think. Yeah, that would I be really mean it's to kill her. Too dark. Um, you know, she has to live for her like boyfriend harem that she secretly has. Yes. All right. Now we're running into characters who I do not remember. The minor, minor characters from Earth House. So let's go to other ones. Uh, let's see. Um, some of these I don't know. Delling Rembrandt. Oh, he's dead. Oh, he's, he's dead. Yeah. He's so dead. Yeah. I mean, fuck, he, he could he could wind up being a better person. He could wind up being a worse person. But he will be dead at the end of this show. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Sarius Zanelli, Shadik's dad. Oh, he's super dead. Yeah, super dead. I think Shadik might kill is him. already dead. Never mind. Yeah, um, yeah. No, you're right. Uh, let's see. Uh, Belmaria Winston. No, she already died. No, she didn't. She's still there. No, uh, she's the girl from the Pale Institute. She'll uh, die. Who she'll die. She'll but she might also have a similar arc as a Nina, I think, because mm. she clearly does not feel great about what she's doing at Pale House. So she might be dead. Uh, but all the Pale House people will die, I'm sure. Uh, Lady Prospera? Yeah, I think it's, it's hard to imagine that she doesn't get killed. I mean, she's so, yes. you know, I mean, there would have to be a big plot twist about, like, what Quiet Zero is or something about, like, what her ultimate objective is that would allow her to live. Um, but it definitely yeah. feels like they're heading towards she's the big bad and she will die in the last episode or whatever. So you don't think that this show will end with Suleta and Mirine getting married and Lady Prospera in her mask walking Suleta down the aisle? As, as fun as it is to hear Mami Konota say, like, Omedito gozaimasu, like, in her very, like, terrifyingly calm voice in that scene, um, no, I don't think it's going to go that way. And finally, our Dawn of Fold pilots, Norea and Sophie, they're super dead. There's, yeah, they're, they're the cyber new type <laughs> girls. No, the cyber new type girls do not survive. Like, that's, you know, we already killed a cyber new type boy. Uh, it's like, those are the easiest characters to kill off in the Gundam. Yep. All right. Well, there you have it. Um, we were only confident about three or four characters living. So that's Gundam for you. Yeah, you know, it's, I mean... And it was a show that for a little bit there, I think it would have been, I would have been less confident that this show would be super bloodthirsty. But after... Oh, it's going to be bloodthirsty. Yeah after, yeah, after the very end, the very, very end of episode 12, which if people were confused about us kind of talking about, oh, she splats a dude like a tomato. And if you didn't watch past the end credits of the last episode of the season, uh, make sure you see that scene. Uh, because I did see some people on Twitter be like, what, what are people talking about? And they go, oh, oh, shit. Uh, if you're, you know, some anime noobs who don't know, you always watch past the credits um, because that's where the most important shit happens. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've talked around that scene a lot. That scene, we should just end sure. by talking about that yes. scene. Holy shit. I, yeah. I think whatever level of Gundam experience you came into this show with, that's still, like, just passing that line the way they do, it is one of the most graphically violent images in mm -hmm. Gundam history. There are, we have seen people get stepped on or splatted by mobile suits before, but it is usually out of frame. So, for instance, in the Kukuru's Doan's Island movie mm -hmm. from last year, Amuro steps on someone, but it is specifically done out of frame. We see Amuro's reaction. We do not see a pool of blood and, and viscous. Uh, this is... The splat happens twice. They do it like a fucking Jackie Chan stunt where uh -huh. we just see the thing happen twice in a row. Blood everywhere. Mirine covered in it. The 
absolute horror of having Suleta then slide down and laughing about how she's a klutz while being covered in this dude's blood and then offering her hand out and you have the butt blood bulbously kind of going out in these like bubbles because it's in space and it's zero G. Like it is one of the most viscerally upsetting scenes in Gundam history. It's like a scene worthy of like Victory Gundam or something. It's fucked. Yeah, I think the only thing in Gundam that is even close in terms of the level of gore is there's some stuff in Gundam Seed where they have that super weapon or whatever that causes people to explode. Some of those shots are really graphic in Gundam Seed. Um, probably the yeah. thing this reminds me of a lot, there's a there's a scene in an episode of Eureka 7 that is quite gory that this kind of reminded me of a little bit. And I almost kind of feel like it's a... It's a play on that scene in some ways or like an inversion of it because Saleta's reaction is the exact opposite of the reaction of the protagonist of Yurka 7 when he sees oh god I'm murdering people in this thing and blood everywhere and this is horrifying and Saleta just sort of rolls with it um yeah it's an amazing ending because the whole thing with that episode 12 is that it's it's clearly you're building up the tension, particularly over the course of episode 11. You're getting the tension of seeing the personal relationships in that drama happening in the space station, while all the while this group of terrorists with two Gundam girls are like on their way to the station. So like it's ratcheting up the tension so much. And then you go into episode 12 and you have Guel fucking murders his father. All that shit happens. And then you get... Saleta getting the speech from the mom about like murdering people is okay and at that point I think everyone's assumption if you've seen Gundam or even if you haven't seen Gundam and just like you can read the normal story pattern would be she then goes out and fights and kills one of the Gundam enemy Gundam girls that I thought for sure that would be what Th that's what I was expecting was. yeah like and, Sophie is literally like taunting yes. and running around she's like it's Suleta Mercury this is the girl we've been hearing about and I thought for sure the ending would be she gets killed by this person she's following around yeah and that it would horrify Sleta as she has to like actually do this and like really commit to the violence then that would be like the standard Gundam scene and you'd have this kind of more standard Gundam or mecha protagonist development moment where she has to like confront the reality of the violence um, and, and it horrifies her because she's a child like that's the thing you expect to see and instead that encounter just goes by and it's like and it's a complete anticlimax. like you know the aerial comes out it's souped up the aerial design there is super cool but it's also very terrifying they've taken the kind of more um fun bubbly looking aerial design um and made it much more severe looking and it's and all that um it looks more like a weapon of war and she's got this giant cannon and she blows up the legs of that one enemy mobile suit and they go and retreat and that's it and you kind of feel like oh that's it like that's the end of the episode and it goes to credits basically um, but then if you're, again, you're a smart anime viewer, you know, uh, there's probably going to be something more. And if you see the runtime of the episode, yeah, there's more than 90 seconds left. Um, and it comes back up from the ending. And so that the payoff being there where it's like, after all that shit's done, Saleta comes in, she sees Miordina as being threatened. And then she just splats this dude, um, in this comical fashion, like Ishinose Kata's line read where she goes, Yame na sai. And she like says it like, hey, stop that, you idiot. Like basically like, come on, what you doing? And she just splats this dude like a tomato. Um, it is like legitimately like upsetting. Like it's like it, it hits you in the stomach, I think, just seeing that because you're you're so not expecting it. You're kind of lost a little bit from the anticlimax of the scene that came before and then getting confronted with that and Saleta 
it's so far from your expectation expecting Seleta to be horrified by the violence she does. Instead, she's she just doesn't care about the violence. She's just like, hey, come on, let's go. Um, and, you know, one of the things that's compelling about the scene is that it's hard to blame Saleta for killing that guy because that guy was going to murder Miodine. So it's like her using lethal violence against that guy, I don't think is like morally a big deal. Like I don't think it's, it's hard to make a strong ethical argument that what Saleta did was like really wrong to kill this guy um, when he was about to murder her best friend and her best friend's father. Um, but the way that she does it in her reaction afterwards is so unsettling that that is what pushes Miodine to use the word murderer, Hitogodoshi, to describe Sleta. That's like you you murdered somebody um, and you're and you're somehow able to smile about it. Um, what a dark, upsetting way to leave to leave the story, but like a perfect way that I think really and elegantly subverts the expectations of the audience and what you kind of expect to have happened based on that buildup. It's a twist, but it's the kind of twist that like you do not see it coming in yeah. that way. And it it breaks the show in the sense of that now the show like cannot be what it was mm-hmm. before that scene. It just my my joke about it comes back and they're eating burgers and it's a joke about ketchup. You can't do that after this scene. You know, you just you have to do something else next time. But it doesn't break the show in the sense that it broke the rules of the show. I think when you look at it, it makes total sense. And yes. that's what's kind of scary about it. Um, and it just, but it does leave me like, I'm so curious what the, like, what is the next scene? What is the next episode when you have crossed this boundary that firmly and dropped the mic that hard? Uh, because the show can never be exactly what it was before. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, yeah. Like we have not, one thing we haven't talked about yet is the absolutely delightful, wonderful Gundam song and commercial they make uh-huh. in, I think, episode eight. Uh, and Suleta doing the fun dance and talking about Ariel, it can dance, it can fly, yeah. and all of that. It will be very hard to do a, a similar version of that scene next time around, you know? Yeah, it can dance, it can fly, it can kill Ariel. <laughs> Yeah, they got footage from the cockpit of her splatting that oh, dude, God. and they put it in the next commercial. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, I do have some news here, Sean. I think we may have um, broken Thomas, making him watch Gundam shows. Not making him, but I have suggested to him watching many Gundam shows, and he constantly ends them calling me and being just distraught and sad <laughs> because of all the bad things that happen. And I think it's changed his anime viewing habits where he's become a huge fan of, like, slice of life very low stakes anime he's become someone who's gaining an encyclopedic knowledge of all of that and i don't know if the causality has always been he may have been starting to get into those before he watched like og gundam but it's definitely like uh you know gundam upsets him a lot uh and his whole thing with this one is the other day he texted me and said good news i found a simple slice of life anime to unwind from gundam uh, this one is Aherasan wa Hakarenai from mm-hmm. a couple years ago. I have not seen this one, um, but I, I have I have known after Gun he's seen Gundam Zeta, Double Zeta, and Char's Counterattack, and I'm fairly confident he has picked up a different small scale life slice of life show after every single one of those. Especially Double Zeta breaking his heart with Pudu, who was his favorite character, uh, mm-hmm. and he had to see her die several times. Um, has he watched Unicorn his- Gundam yet? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I had Sean the the me having to keep quiet because his joke now with every Gundam show is do they kill Pudu in this one? And when he asked me about Unicorn, the me biting my lip <laughs> and like um 
Um, what do I say? I don't want to lie. Uh, because, <laughs> yes. But no, he has seen Unicorn Gundam. That upset. He really liked Unicorn Gundam, but he was mad they killed Puru again. Uh, and I had to, like, promise him, no, there is there is no Puru. This is a different continuity. You will like G-Witch. Uh, but also, I was re- I started recommending it to him before this final episode. <laughs> and then I felt a little bit like, uh, Thomas is going to have to pick up another Slice of Life show. You know, I mean, hey, the thing I watched after finishing G-Witch is I started watching this show that I'm almost done with now um, called Do It Yourself. Uh, it's, yeah. great, it's it's very fun. Uh, it just aired last season. Uh, it's about high school girls at a school joining the Do It Yourself or DIY club. And it's all about them going and making like fun arts and crafts projects and like making a bench and all, going to the beach and getting shells and stuff so they can make and sell necklaces so they can build a treehouse together at the school to have their club in. It's fucking great. Uh, and nobody gets murdered like they're a fucking tomato. It's, it's awesome. Kimi wa ikinobiru koto ga dekiru ka.